When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my dear, dear friends, and welcome back to another year of Scripture Study here on Unshaken. To you who are new to the channel or the podcast, I especially welcome you. Consider the red carpet officially rolled out in your behalf. By way of introduction, my name is Jared Halverson. I'm originally from Southern California and fell in love with the gospel as a child. Reading scripture was my favorite thing. I fell in love with teaching the gospel as a missionary in the Caribbean and later at the Missionary Training Center. And I've been teaching it ever since. The last oh, 23 years in the Seminary and Institute program. And I currently teach Institute at the University of Utah. As far as my own education is concerned, I went to a Bible Belt Divinity School, which was interesting, being a token Latter-day Saint there, uh, to study religion. And um, my PhD is in American and Religious History, and I specialize in anti-religious rhetoric. So I study the strange and hateful things that people say to try to shred one another's faith. Uh, that does sound odd, and it is, but I'm amazed at how useful that has been as I have tried to help other people navigate their crises of faith. And so I, in the classes that I teach, in, in these YouTube videos and podcasts that I produce, in one-on-one in -on -one conversations I have with people all over the world, trying to help them navigate a life of faith in a day of doubt. And, and it's been an incredible blessing to be able to connect with people all over the world to try to help them answer difficult questions and, and maintain their life of faith. I hope, in fact, my, my hope for this channel when I first started it and first called it Unshaken, was to help people build an unshaken faith, despite all the earthquakes in diverse places that are out there. Those of you who have been with me the whole time realize, remember that I started the channel the day after the earthquake in Salt Lake City. Uh, and originally, honestly, my plan was just to stay connected with my students at Institute. COVID had just hit. We were all scrambling to try to keep teaching them somehow. And so I just threw some videos online so I could keep teaching my students. And I've been amazed at how it has has grown around the world until there is now this, I just picture you out there, this wonderful community of unshaken saints wanting to immerse yourself in scripture in ways that you never had before. And I am blown away by your interest level, to be honest. Uh, we're now at what, like seven and a half million views and downloads already. And, and to see how long you're willing to hang with me. <laughs> I mean, you who, who stuck with me the entire Doctrine and Covenants year last year, you did something, not, nothing short of miraculous. I counted it all up, and we spent 132 hours in the Doctrine and Covenants last year. Uh, in an institute course, if, if my students come the entire semester and never miss a class, then by the end of it, we have spent just shy of 24 hours total class time together. So I always joke at the end of the semester, like, you know, it feels like we've known each other for three or four months, but really, we've only spent one day together. So I hope it was a good day for you. <laughs> but for you intrepid, unshaken saints that stuck with me through the Doctrine and Covenants, we spent five and a half days together, nonstop, which is five and a half semesters worth of scripture study. That's more attention than the Doctrine and Covenants ever gets in institute or even at the church schools in the religion department. And I hope it was 
as life-changing for you as it was for me. That was some of my favorite feedback was from so many of you saying, I was nervous about the Doctrine and Covenants. It's never been my favorite book, but now it has come to life. And you spend that much time with anything, it's probably going to come to life for you. And if you felt that way about the Doctrine and Covenants, I'm guessing you probably feel even more that way about the Old Testament. Now, you might, might love the stories, uh, and that is one thing that sets the Old Testament apart. There's, there's lots of great veggie tales out there, okay? But we want to go beyond the veggie tale. We want to understand doctrine and principle. We want to, to feast upon the words of Christ as found in this foundational book of Scripture. And yes, it is intimidating. It's the longest. It's the oldest. It's the most foreign to us. And therefore, in, for many of us, it's the most confusing. In fact, just a, a few quick experiences. The first year I was going to teach Old Testament in seminary, I knew my students were scared to death of it. I knew they were coming into class that first week just with, with fear and trembling. Uh, and I felt a little, of it, a little of it myself, to be honest. And I remember just thinking, how am I going to help these students realize just how incredible the Old Testament is? I want them to have fun with it. I want them to get excited about that. I want them to see its relevance in their lives. And so, uh, kind of on a whim, I, I rewrote the, song, the, the lyrics to a song. If any of you are Billy Joel fans, there's a song called uh, We Didn't Start the Fire. And it's a weird song because it doesn't tell a story. It just kind of machine gun fire. It goes through years of history and lists a bunch of things that happened in, in all of those years. It's actually a fascinating historical study. Uh, I think Billy Joel has, had been a history teacher at one point or was intending to be and then he got into music, whatever. Well. In hopes of exciting my students about the book, the, the Old Testament, I, I took We Didn't Start the Fire and I rewrote the lyrics to become We Didn't Write the Bible. And it listed all the books of the Old Testament. It listed the 12 tribes of Israel. It listed all of the kind of great figures and even lesser known ones. Just, it was a, a massive dump of as much Old Testament as I could into this upbeat song of We Didn't Write the Bible. The, the, uh, the irony there, though, is I don't, I'm not much of a singer, and I, di I didn't know how to play the gu guitar at all. But I got an old guitar and, and learned, I went online and learned just enough chords to be able to sing along to my spoof version of, of we, didn't, uh, we Didn't Write the Bible. And I remember the day I was going to play it. it was, you know, we'd, we'd met each other, you know, the first or second day of class, and, and now it's time to really dig into the Old Testament. And I remember telling my students, okay, wait right here. I'll be right back. And I ran out and went into my office to put on my wife's bathrobe, which is the closest thing I've ever seen to a coat of many colors. I put on this Arabic uh, headdress that I'd gotten as a stu student studying abroad in Israel. And so I, I was... I was keyed into my Old Testament persona, okay? And I grabbed the guitar and my music thinking, am I really gonna do this? I don't even know how to play the guitar. Whew, here goes nothing. And I walked back into the classroom as all eyes on me like, what happened to bro how? Uh, what's with the bathrobe? And I, I sat down and started strumming and then and saying to my students, we didn't write the Bible. And by the end, we were all rocking out to it. It was hilarious, uh, just how, how much fun we had that day. It actually became, it became a tradition. And all through that, that year, I would rewrite uh, modern pop songs to tell Old Testament stories. I borrowed Simon and Garfunkel to tell the flood story, or American Pie to talk about the Exodus, or Tom Petty helped me with 
the story of Jonah and Kenny Rogers told the story of David. Uh, it was it was wild and and the students loved it, uh, despite my, my poor singing voice and, and even worse guitar. I had to learn a few more chords each time I found a new song. Uh, but, but it was amazing to watch these teenagers just come to love the Old Testament. Uh, and not just because of goofy songs, but because they started seeing relevance and application in their lives. If you remember the old days when there'd be those Mormon ads in the new era, where there'd be a picture and some kind of text, this is like the original meme, right? Uh, and, and we made dozens of those based on story after story in the Old Testament, and then try to put with a picture of what we studied, some kind of text language to describe a, a moral of the story, It's what we call them. And there, we were amazed at the morals of the story we could draw out of, of what we found in the Old Testament. I still look back at that as one of my favorite years of, of teaching seminary. Now fast forward, and now I'm a seminary and institute coordinator in, in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'm trying to train early morning seminary teachers as they're preparing to teach the Old Testament for the first time. And believe me, you wonderful early morning seminary teachers out there, if you're doing it now, if you've ever done it in the past, man, if that doesn't get you into the Celestial Kingdom, nothing else will. I mean, that, is, that calling is one of the best in the church, but it's relentless. And especially when you have the Old Testament, so much to cover. And it's so, it's so difficult to wrap our minds around. I was feeling on behalf of my teachers just what they were up against. Now, I was new in the area, and so I used that to my advantage because the teachers I was training didn't know me yet. Uh, and so I could pretend to be total straight-faced, uh, kind of poker face, and serious and solemn. And, and it was hilarious because this first in-service meeting that we had with these new, these new volunteer, freshly called seminary teachers, uh, I sat down and said, hello, my name is Brother Halverson. Um, I'm here to help prepare you for the Old Testament. I just, before you begin to teach it, I need to make sure that you know what you're talking about. And so we're going to have a little, oh, pre-test uh, to make sure you're qualified to teach the Old Testament. And these poor teachers, you know, I came in the poker face the whole time. They were like, wait, seriously? I have to know what? I didn't ask for this calling. Uh, they just asked me to do it. And I, and I crazily said yes. Uh, and I just, I let them stew on this. And then I had this PowerPoint with their, with their test questions. And I had put together 10 or 12 of the most random, like, uh, trivia questions. What were the names of the, of the midwives that helped birth the Hebrew children during, during the Exodus? And they're like, their names? What? Or what tribe was so-and-so from during the reign of the judges? And they're like, what are you kidding me? And again, I was doing my very best to not break out laughing. Uh, but they went through, I, I pretty much knew everyone would get a zero out of 10. But again, I played it off like you need to know your stuff if you're going to be able to teach these things. Well, by the time they went through it and everyone was ready to go ask to be released from their calling, uh, I said, well, okay, now we're going to grade ourselves. So let me put some, some answers on the board. In fact, I'll just show you one slide that has all 10 answers. And you can just grade yourself. And they're like, why? I can do it now. I get zero out of, out of 10. I clicked the next, to the next slide and it just said, who cares? And they were like, wait, what? And then I could finally let my smile show and start laughing going, guys, it's not about Old Testament trivia. We're not trying to prepare these kids for jeopardy. We're trying to prepare them for life in the celestial kingdom of God. Uh, and so we're going to be teaching principles of the gospel like you've always taught from the Book of Mormon, the New Testament, the Doctrine and Covenants. They're just couched in different stories, and you'll be fine. 
And then we went through this whole training on how to find principles in Scripture. Elder Richard G. Scott defined principles as concentrated truths packaged for application. And, and how do we find morals to the story? And how do we find insight in the text? Does that mean there's no room for the archaeology and the history and the, the philology and everything else? No, there's, there's, that can be so helpful. But it should never become the, its own ends. That's means to a greater end. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But it was, it was amazing to watch the, the stress level of these teachers diminish. Like, maybe I can actually teach this. And then by the end of, the, of this in-service meeting, I went back to those first 10 questions that seemed so trivial and so irrelevant and helped them find principles in the names of those two Hebrew midwives, Name, uh, principles in, in the tribal lineage of that particular judge, uh, things that, that we thought were trivial that, that weren't. Once we found the, the principle that was was hiding behind the text. You see, when I was first starting grad school and was studying, I, I wanted to, be, I intended to become this great uh, Hebraist. I, my, my thoughts when I was an undergrad was to become an Old Testament scholar. And then I fell in love with just teaching the gospel and helping people connect with scripture and, and learning more about faith and how to, to navigate it. That when I finally did go to divinity school, and started my, my doctoral work, the first semester, the Lord was kind enough to bless me with an article that changed my whole perspective. It was from an, uh, a Harvard Islamicist, of all people. And he said, there are some scholars who study the world that created the Bible. And he talked about the Quran in his instance. But then he said, there are other scholars, or at least there should be, who study the worlds, plural, that the scriptures create so why do we only study first century Palestine to make sense of the New Testament when the New Testament was just as important in 16th century Germany when Martin Luther studied it or in 19th century America when Joseph Smith studied it or in 21st century wherever you are as you turn your attention to the Bible yourself. And that clicked with me as I realized I didn't even know that option existed. And so I felt like, nope, there's only one way to approach it, and that's historically and linguistically and textually and archaeologically and everything else. And then I realized, wait, there's an afterlife of Scripture. There's a resonance within Scripture to, to the worlds that are created in its aftermath. And I, for one, am grateful for the spiritual world that the Scriptures have created for me and for countless students over the years. And while we'll pull out as much insight as we can from the historical and the, the, the background behind the Old Testament, it's going to be means to a far greater end. And that's to, for us to find how do we navigate life with the help of, of the Old Testament. That's how Paul did it. I mean, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, as he walks you through the Old Testament, that's the only scripture he had, drawing upon example after example of faithful saints that gave him hope to be able to move forward, to run the race that was set before him. He called them his cloud of witnesses. And that's what we'll have in the Old Testament together this year. We will be encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. And they will prepare us 
to run with faith the race that is placed before us. Honestly, I hope that is one place I can contribute to the conversation. Because I recognize there are a lot of amazing Come Follow Me channels out there. And I'm friends with most of the people who, who, who run them. And they're awesome. We cheer each other on and feel like we're one big online faculty. Just hoping that students will gravitate to a teacher that they can resonate with and learn more about the Word of God than they, they could otherwise. Uh, but that is one contribution I hope to make is the afterlife of Scripture and to help us find application in the things that we're studying. Uh, to be true to an Abraham or a Moses or an Esther that's behind the text, but also be, to be true to you sitting there in front of the text. I always try to picture the scriptural writer and my students in the same room, and I don't want to lose either party. I don't want the, the, the prophet to roll his eyes going, this has nothing to do with what I wrote. But I don't want my students rolling their eyes thinking, this has nothing to do with what I'm, what I'm going through and how I'm living. So to connect the two, is one place I hope to be able to be a blessing to you. And the other also, based on my years of studying doubt and, and anti-religion, uh, if you thought there was a lot of anti-Mormonism out there, there's more anti-Christianity by far. And yes, I wrote a master's thesis on how people attacked the, the Book of Mormon, but I wrote a doctoral dissertation on how, how the, the Bible's been attacked. And, and to try to help make sense of how we can gain faith in the scriptures, through the scriptures, that is one gift I hope to give you uh, through our study of the Old Testament this year. One last example, and then we'll actually dig into the text. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, there's a story that has always motivated me as a teacher. Acts 8 tells the story of Philip, the apostle, and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, a eunuch, you can look up in the top of the Bible dictionary and see what that means, is someone that's going to feel left out of Israel because he cannot have a family the way most people could. And yet this eunuch was faithful and he'd been to Jerusalem to worship and was now headed back south to Ethiopia in his chariot. And Philip is wandering by and the spirit says, that's your guy, go get him. And he sprints to catch up to the, to the chariot and notices this eunuch is reading scripture along the way. And he happens to be in the book of Isaiah, and so he asks the ultimate question to ask anyone studying Isaiah, do you understand what you're reading? And of course the answer comes back, no. The way he says it, I love. He says, how can I, unless some man shall teach me? If there's going to be greater understanding, there has to be better teaching. And how am I going to get this without anybody's help? I'm trying. I'm studying. I could just use some additional insight. And that, as a teacher, is something that motivates me, motivates me, that you are faithful, you're amazing, you're studying scripture, you're wanting to understand. You're not just, I mean, you're doing something valuable with your chariot time. But I worry sometimes that in our emphasis to study scripture, without enough education on how to do so effectively, it's hit me that expectation without education leads to frustration. And if your expectation for the Old Testament year is sky high, as it should be, but your understanding, your education in Old Testament scripture is, is down low, then the gap is filled with frustration. And I've been there before with different things when I had high expectation and low education. So how do we fill that gap? We learn. And, and that's one thing that a teacher can help you with. And I hope that me and my colleagues uh, can, can be of assistance to you. 
Now there's something else though, because he he joins. The, it's it, I love the scene. Philip says, uh, or the Ethiopian says, Philip, come sit with me, and he comes sits right down next to him in the chariot, and he's looking over the scripture and notices that he's in Isaiah chapter 53, which is one of the most messianic just atonement-focused, Christ-centered chapters in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's a masterpiece. It's the one that Isaiah, that Abinadi quotes uh, in, in its entirety to the priests of Noah. Good stuff. And my favorite verse in Acts chapter 8 is where it says that beginning at that scripture, Philip preached Jesus. I love that. It's like, what, what page are you on, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, oh, right there? Oh, okay, yeah, I can teach you Jesus from there. Now, if you can't teach Jesus from Isaiah 53, then you haven't looked hard enough. But that became my goal as a teacher of the gospel. Threefold. Number one, recognize the eunuchs out there that feel left out, that feel like I'll never be able to fit in because I don't fit the mold. Now, I've... I've wrestled with that when it comes to gender issues and race, issue, race issues and sexuality issues and, and primarily faith issues. As a lot of people in the church, spiritually speaking, feel like eunuchs in Israel. Like, I don't fit the mold. I, I can't say I know like everyone else knows. I, you understand what I'm saying with this eunuch analogy? A eunuch can be a metaphor for anyone that feels like they're on the outside looking in. And my heart goes out to you particularly. If I had the time and I try to make up as much of it as I can to just sit down and hear your story and come sit with you on your, on your chariot, uh, then I would. I try to do that as much as I can. If that's the first step as a teacher, come notice the, the eunuchs out there. That, then number two, Try to come to understand if they understand. And gauge their level of understanding and make sure you're sitting right beside them as you do. If you'll give me room alongside you in your chariot, I would consider it a great privilege to join you for this leg of your journey. Uh, looking down at scripture and trying to make sure that we understand what is being taught. So recognizing the eunuchs, help trying to gauge their understanding and joining them in order to increase it. And then third and most important, find out no matter what page they happen to be on, whether it's in scripture or in life, and from that scripture, preach unto them Jesus. Like I said, that's easy from Isaiah 53. Can we do it from Numbers 14? Can we do it from Leviticus 1? Can we do it from Haggai 2? Can we, can we do it no matter what page you happen to be studying? Or more personally, whatever page in life you happen to be on, can we start from your location and get to that common destination? Now, I know the destination. I wish I knew you better to understand your current location. And for that, you will have to seek the Spirit's guidance to know how do I make sense of what Brother Halverson's explaining from the Old Testament to fit my circumstance right now as a eunuch in Israel that doesn't understand everything and can't find Jesus here. And can we get to the destination that the Lord has in mind for us? That, that is my greatest hope this year 
as we study the Old Testament together, to help you find Jesus, to help you understand who he is and who you are and how you connect to him, and that you'll feel that you're not, that you're not cast off after all, that you're not on the outside looking in, that God has a place for you, and he's trying to bring you to that place. In fact, I don't know of a better way to introduce the Old Testament than the way we get to introduce it as members of the church. And that's not in Genesis 1, it's in Moses 1. You see, Moses 1, that first chapter of the book of Moses, in some ways should have been the first chapter of the books of Moses. Because Moses, the book of Moses is the Joseph Smith translation of the first chapters of Genesis. And the Joseph Smith translation is Joseph trying to restore the Bible to what it needed to be. Now, is that historical or spiritual? And I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Uh, to me, what, I, what fascinates me is the verse in section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants where Sidney Rigdon is called to help be Joseph's scribe for the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. Because he's told in that section, I want to give you the scriptures as they are had in mine own bosom. Now, that fascinates me. I, the JST is supposed to be the scriptures as, as God has them in his own bosom? What does he mean by that? On the one hand, when I was younger, I pictured like a literal text. Like God loves his scriptures so much that he hugs them to his chest. And he's restoring like lost manuscripts. Uh, and that there was, there was actually text there. And he's showing Joseph a page of his, his bosom Bible. Now that may be true. Then again... Does God confine himself to language? I mean, I know he is the word, but is he confined to mere words? Joseph Smith once gave a, a sermon about the books of Peter in Nauvoo, and he said, what we find in scripture are only hints of what existed in the prophet's mind. And that blows my mind too, like, whoa. So we're not, it's not as text-based as we think it has to be. We're trying to almost eliminate the middleman and get back to the original source, that if this is just a hint, what's here on the page is a hint of what was in the prophet's mind. And even that is trying to tap back into what was in God's heart, in his bosom. Remember that parable about Lazarus and the rich man, and when Lazarus dies, he goes to heaven, but it's not called heaven in the New Testament. In that parable, it's called that he was in Abraham's bosom. I can't think of a better description of heaven than a divine embrace from someone who loves you. And to think of heaven, salvation being relational instead of transactional, like did I pay enough for my sins or did Jesus pay it off for me? No, it's come and let me hold you. Come into my bosom. That's heaven and that's scripture. That if God can convey to us what's in his heart, and, and how he feels about us, and how desperately he's seeking to bring us home, that's the scripture as is found in God's own bosom. And that's the Joseph Smith translation, and, and especially in the book of Moses. We'll see it really clearly when we get to chapter 6 and chapter 7 about Enoch, because there's like no equivalent of that in the book of Genesis. But the same is true of Moses chapter 1, because there's no equivalent. Genesis 1, in the beginning, and here's the creation. Well, we get that in chapter 2 of Moses. We get the creation start, starting there, but I guess in the beginning wasn't quite the beginning. And so what we see in Moses 1 is where Genesis comes from. 
See, there's always been a kind of a mystery. And actually, skeptics and scholars both have cast doubt on the Mosaic authorship of the books of Moses. And they actually do have a leg to stand on. Sometimes they've brought up things like the end of Deuteronomy that talks about Moses' death, we would say his translation. And they're like, well, you can't write about your own death, so Moses couldn't have written that. And to me, I'm like, well, duh. But does that cast doubt on the entire Pentateuch, all five books of Moses? Come on. Can, can't somebody add the end uh, as an afterthought to kind of sum it up? We're still going to put it in Moses' book because it's about him and not be Moses himself? That, come on. You're, you're really going to throw out the baby with the bathwater over that? Now, there's some other clues earlier on that might be more problematic. Where are there some hints that why this couldn't have been written in Moses' day because certain things hadn't happened yet? And I'm not discounting prophecy, but these are non-prophetic statements. It's just kind of stuff in passing like, oh, and in the days that the Canaanites were in the land, and it's like, wait a minute, that wasn't the case in Moses'. So it must have been, wait a minute, was this written after the fact? Where does Moses go? And there's all this confusion. Couple that with uh, a long history of what they of the documentary hypothesis, which suggests that there's like four different sources uh, that that are woven together into what we now have in the Old Testament, and it's different stories coming into some kind of. Uh, different strands in the tapestry, so to speak. And one is referring to God in this way, and one sees this perspective, and one has this and that. And, and there are some, sadly, who take that and go, oh, well, then it can't be inspired, and Moses had nothing to do with it. And then there's others that say, no, that can't possibly be the case because it was all Moses. And if you've learned with me at all, then you know that my favorite quote from Joseph Smith is this one, that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And a contrary is a paradox where both things are true and both are positive and necessary, like justice and mercy, or faith and works, or in this case, divinity and humanity. To see in Scripture, and we'll, I mean, there are human fingerprints. I talked about this in the, old, in the Book of Mormon year two years ago. There are human fingerprints all over, all over the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon writers admitted that. And that's important because if you grew up only seeing divine fingerprints and being told that any human fingerprint would negate the entire thing, then the moment you do see any human fingerprints, then it is over for you. And you go, come crashing out of creation down into fall and don't realize there's an atonement further ahead that, that can sort things out for you. No, you come running out of Eden thinking there's, there's no hope and no heaven. And sadly, skeptics who have tried to shred the Bible are banking on that, on that basic and brittle belief. I guess what I'm trying to say in this is as we turn to Moses chapter 1 and try to make sense of what Joseph is giving us here, I have no problem with the documentary hypothesis. I have no problem with, with, with human error. I have no problem with human fingerprints. In fact, in some ways, they make the divine fingerprints all the more glorious as, they come sh as that light comes shining through an earthen vessel, since that's all God ever has to work with is earthen vessels. Again, if we believe in the doctrine of the Incarnation, which we do, that Christ came as human and divine, if He Himself proves that contrary, then why can't we allow the Scriptures to prove that contrary also? Those who want to shred the book of Genesis particularly, saying that's not a book of Moses, his name is never there. 
Well, then maybe you'll like Moses chapter 1 because it introduces Moses in the very first verse as the source behind what we have in Genesis. So if you're on that end of the spectrum, then thank heaven for Moses chapter 1. On the other hand, if you're still like, oh, but these other things, and that, that's no problem. Where was Moses in all of this? Was he gathering oral tradition from others? Was he, obviously here, he is receiving divine revelation from God, so he understands the creation account, since no earthly oral tradition could account for that. Nobody was there for it. But at the same time, could it have passed through later editors? Could other strands have taken what they learned from Moses and from others and brought it together into the Bible as we see it today? I have no problem with that at all. In fact, as Latter-day Saints, we should have the least problem with that. Since, look at the Book of Mormon. What did Mormon do? He gathered together records and plates from all kinds of different sources and time periods and people and wove them together. And there are places where it's hard to tell. Is that Mormon weighing in on things? Sometimes it's obvious, and thus we see. Uh, other times, is that are those Mormon's words or are they Alma's words? Is he quoting or is he summarizing a story? Uh, to see the editorial work that goes into the Book of Mormon is fascinating. Uh, and, and we're okay with that. I would hope that we would be okay with similar things going on in, in biblical studies. Of Do I see Moses in, this in this, these texts? Yes. Coming through beautifully. Do I see other people trying to make sense of what Moses had given them? I see that too. And like I said, I'm, I'm fine with all of it. More than anything, I see what the Lord is trying to do in giving us truth from his own bosom. I'm less concerned about, about text and more concerned about truth. I'm less concerned about redaction and more concerned with relation as far as my relationship with God is concerned. And that's what God is giving us in Moses chapter 1. I can only imagine as, Mo as Joseph Smith opens up his King James Bible and looks at Genesis chapter 1 with the responsibility to restore truth as found in God's own bosom and reading in the beginning and right then the Lord kind of going, actually, Joseph, that's not quite the beginning. Get out your pen and lay aside the Bible for a moment because I'm about to give you an entire chapter with no equivalent in, in the book of Genesis. This will be prelude to all that you're going to do from this point forward. And, and not just prelude, but perspective on how you need to, need to read all that comes beyond. Now, in order to do that, as we now turn to Moses chapter 1, and we'll study Abraham 3 also, which is not just in the beginning, but way before the beginning. Let's go pre-mortal, shall we? Uh, it's mind-blowing. And again, that was Joseph giving us translation from God's own bosom. Oh, there's amazing things we get to, to, to talk about today and throughout our year. But, but let me say this by way of, of approach. Especially to you who've been with me this past Doctrine and Covenants year, or even before that, the Book of Mormon year. The Doctrine and Covenants lent itself beautifully to a verse-by-verse -verse approach. First of all, it's our shortest book of Scripture, not to, not to count the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, and so it felt a little more doable. 
And the fact that it's revelation rather than narration makes a huge difference. Because as God is speaking, I want to make sense of every word he says. And so as we, no wonder it took us 100, 132 hours last year uh, of trying to make sense of language and why was this one plural and that one singular? Or look at the verb tense here. That's amazing. And what is he saying here? And does that word surprise you? What does he mean by this? I loved doing that with you last, last year. And if you hung with me, then probably because you liked that approach as well. And the fact that it, it mimics the way you actually study your scripture, which is verse by verse by verse. You just keep reading and looking for insight and trying to make sense as you go. Now, uh, that was doable, barely. Uh, it took us a lot of time. But that was doable in the Doctrine and Covenants. And like I said, when there's not a narrative uh, th that can be summarized, you can just dig into the text itself because that's all we have. Now, that's the only book of Scripture that's like it. The uh, Book of Mormon, New Testament, Old Testament is all narrative-based with beautiful sermons and revelations and text language uh, running throughout it. And at those places you stop and, and savor every word. But so much of narrative is, uh, there's value in, in kind of a narrative approach and understanding how it's being described and so on. But verse by verse is probably overkill in those kinds of situations. And that's the case in much of the Old Testament. It's especially the case just in the simple fact that a verse by verse approach in the Old Testament is literally unsustainable. Um, I've barely kept my snorkel tip above water this past year, and to go verse by verse in the Old Testament will be impossible. So my question all along has been, how am I going to tackle the Old Testament? I love this book. I want people to understand it and find Jesus there and find themselves there. And I, I want to be on, on your chariot alongside you, but we're going to have to be more selective. And so my question was, how selective should I be? And I can hear my wife <laughs> crying out and my kids pleading, be very selective, Dad. Be very selective, honey. Uh, we could use a little more of your time, and I'm, I'm going to try to honor that uh, for their sake uh, while I still try to honor uh, the time that you want to spend in Scripture together. My hope this year, as opposed to the last two, is for shorter videos. Uh, those of you who have hung with me, I don't, don't think will be scared off by it, but perhaps those who were scared off by long videos might actually hang with me this year for, for these ones uh, to do more summarizing of the narrative, uh, uh, some more water skiing, so to speak, when we have a huge lake to cover, but without missing out on the chance to snorkel where there's places we, get, we need to get below the surface and places to scuba dive when there is buried treasure that we really want to spend some serious time in. So I'm sorry that it might be more confusing because we're not just going to go verse 1 and then verse 2 and verse 3. We're going to be jumping around and looking more for bigger principles, but we will also be doing our best to do justice to the, the language uh, and, and how things are couched in Scripture so that they can come to life for you and me. Uh, I've got my Scriptures in front of me. I've got notes in front of me as well. I'll be, I'll be jumping back and forth between both of them uh, because in some ways this is trickier for me to do it this way as well. Uh, but I pray it'll be a blessing to all of us. Now, to dive into Moses chapter 1, I, in fact, don't want to start with verse 1. I want to start with verse 39, because that's the one you already know. Moses 139 is one of the great passages in Scripture, because it gives us God's work and glory. It tells us His goal, His purpose, His intent. And so if we're trying to, to come into God's own bosom, 
if we want that relational, salvational hug, then we need to know what, what's in his heart. And that verse sums it up. So in some ways, verse 39 is what all of Moses 1 leads up to. And it's what all of the Old Testament and New and Book of Mormon, Dr. Jonathan's Pearl Great Prize, all of Scripture beyond it comes back to. Because in this very first chapter, the prelude of all Scripture, the Lord is telling us why he does what he does and how he feels about it. For behold, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Now, there's a couple of pairs in that verse. Immortality and eternal life tells us the object, the, the, the goal. Immortality is to live forever. That's the quantity of life. Eternal life is the quality of life. Uh, the first is how long we live. The second is how we live. And eternal life is life like our parents in heaven. That's life in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, as we studied in section 131. Uh, that's, that's God's glory. The church of the firstborn, as we studied in section 76. That's heaven. And what God intends for all of his children. I want you to come home to be with me. And I want you to come home to be like me. I want children to grow up in God, to become like their heavenly parents. And so that's what Moses is going to try to wrap his head around in Moses chapter 1. And what all the rest of scripture is going to give us is, what is God doing? How is he bringing to pass our immortality and eternal life? And every chapter we read will answer that question. Now, there's another pair in that when he said, it's my work and my glory. I work with young single adults, for the most part, uh, an institute. And, and that's a question they often have. Uh, I mean, who will I marry is the big one. But another one is, what should I major in? Because my other question is, what am I supposed to be when I grow up? What should I do for a living? And whenever they come to ask me about that, I always point them to Moses 1.39. Because I say, what you're asking about is your work. What you should be asking first is about your glory. What do you glory in? Remember that verse in, in uh, Jacob where he says, before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you've obtained a hope in Christ, then you'll obtain riches if you seek them. Because your, your perspective will be in the right place. You'll know what to do with the riches once they come. Same thing. Before you seek for a work, Make sure you establish your glory and make sure that glory is building the kingdom of God. Make sure that your work and glory mimics God's work and glory to, to bring people home to him. Now, the tricky part is this. Not all glories can be turned into works because glories usually don't pay. <laughs> it's works that do. And honestly, my heart goes out to any of you who have jobs that you hate, but you stick with it because you have families that you love and you're trying to provide for them. I'm, I'm so amazed by people who just go through life with difficult jobs. Well, I'll put it this way. They, their work isn't their glory, but their work subsidizes their glory. You see, that's what I'm getting at in Moses 139 with my students is in God's case, they're synonymous. This is my work and my glory. It's what I do, but it's what I love. And for my students, I just want to say, figure out your glory and see if there's a way to turn it into your work. If you can, then it'll never feel like you have a job. 
Isn't that the old saying? Get a, get a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, that's my life. My work is my glory. And it's never felt like a job. It feels like I just got to extend my mission for the last 25 years. And I still get to share the gospel. And somehow, I still have money in my bank account to be able to pay the bills. It's the weirdest thing. That's the way it was on my mission. I just, yeah, I have this account and I go buy food with it. It's awesome. But I'm not, I'm just here to share the gospel. And that's me for my whole life. I'm just here to teach the gospel. And somehow, miraculously, I get to feed my family. And, and what's amazing to me is, for my students' sake, is there a way to turn your glory into your work? If there isn't, then at least keep glory first and foremost in your mind and realize why you're working is to be able to pay the bills so that you can still engage in glory, yours and God's. And that's something that I think has helped them put in perspective what to be when they grow up and why to be what they want to be when they grow up. But back to the Lord's version, the fact they're synonymous to me speaks volumes of Him. That it's never been, God doesn't, I'll put it this way, God does not wake up in the morning and stare at the alarm clock and roll his eyes and sigh like, oh man, I gotta go back to the, another day at the, on the chain gang. You know, or another day at the office. I got to go bring to pass immortality and eternal life. There's a rough nine to five. <laughs> no, he's not punching the time clock and looking anxiously for that closing whistle to blow. Yes, it's my work. And yes, it requires work. But it's my glory. It's what I love more than anything. Because it's bringing my children home to be with me and like me. And what's not to love about that? That, no wonder he's trying to bring us into his bosom, into his embrace. His work is what he does, but his glory is who he is. Work is our profession. Glory is our passion. Work is our occupation, but glory is what, what calls our attention. Work, there's our activities. Glory, there's our identities. So to anyone figuring out your future, think a little bit less about how do you make your living and think a little bit more about how do you wish you could spend your life. For God, they're the same thing. And his work and his glory is us, his children. That is something we need to keep in perspective through all of this study. As we see in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, he delights to honor those who serve him in righteousness and in truth. Or earlier in the Doctrine and Covenants, he delights to bless us with the greatest of all blessings. Did you catch the common word? He delights in it. He glories in it. He glories in you. Now, he's going to glory in Moses, and we'll see how he does that as we turn our attention to chapter 1. There's... There's something about him wanting us to engage with him so he can bring to pass his work and glory in our lives and then use us to bring to pass his work and glory in the lives of other people. He's trying to bring us home. In fact, the way he starts this in verse 1 and 2, the words of God, which he spake unto Moses, so we get him right off the bat, at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain, Later we'll find out, we don't know the name of this one. This isn't Sinai. This is after the burning bush experience, but before the bringing the Israelites out of bondage experience. Verse 2, and he saw God face to face, and he talked with him. 
And the glory of God was upon Moses, therefore Moses could endure his presence. Now, not only do those two verses put in perspective, kind of give us the source of this material that we're going to be studying, but in some ways it's, it encapsulates what the Lord is trying to accomplish. Because how does it end? Moses could endure God's presence. And isn't that what he wants for us? That's immortality and eternal life. That's being able to stay, to live with him. And in those two verses, what happens? So the words of God, there's our scripture study. He spake unto Moses. So it's not just reading text, it's, it's personal revelation. It's divine communication. He was caught up. That's above our normal perspective of things. So that's, that's spiritual experience into an exceeding high mountain. We always talk about the temple as the mountain of the Lord. He saw God face to face. There's recognition and relationship. He talked with him. There's prayer and prayer as a form of communication that goes two ways. And the glory of God was on him. How does section 93 redefine the glory of God as intelligence and light and truth? Do you understand what God is trying to help Moses come into? His own presence. And how do we come into God's presence? Through scripture study and personal revelation and spiritual experience and temple worship and recognition and relationship of God everywhere we can see him. Real two-way communicative prayer and being infused with intelligence and light and truth. That's growing up in God. That's receiving grace for grace and continuing from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. That's living into God's work and glory. You know, let's talk about glorious. Now, there's something we need to, to wrestle with here in the first, oh, nine or ten verses of, of Moses chapter one. And it's one of the original contraries we have to prove. Now, as I've said before, proving contraries is balancing opposites, but both of them are good. We're not balancing good and evil. We're balancing good A and good B. We're balancing justice and mercy, or faith and works, or male and female, or divine and human, the community individuality. There's an endless supply. The one that applies most to us now at the beginning of our study of the Old Testament, our first introduction to deity, is to me the central contrary of God himself, and that is the infinite and the intimate. Okay? I want to wrestle with that as we go through these first few verses, because that's the first one God introduces. That's, that's how he introduces himself to Moses and to all of us. Many of you over the years have pointed out the, the painting that's behind my shoulder. It's a masterpiece my daughter made for me. And she's the, she's the talent in the family, okay? I can create with words. She can create with pretty much any other medium. And she painted this based on a lesson I had shared with her about God being both the infinite and the intimate. In the painting, it shows two hands being clasped. And one is the hand of a child, and the other is the hand of heaven. It's the universe. And there's God reaching down to clasp us. The, the fact that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, there's infinitude itself. It kind of blows your mind. It will Moses's. But the fact that he would reach down and want to connect with us, that's equally mind-blowing on a much more personal scale. That's the intimate side of God. And we have to be able to wrestle with both. 
You see, the power of the reason why proving contraries is so important is that if you only take, if you uncouple the contrary and separate the two halves of the whole, the yin and the yang, then one of them will end up becoming a problem because it gets too extreme. It's, it gets out of balance. Think of justice without any mercy and you're Javert. Uh, but think about mercy without any justice and you're just, you have no boundaries. You're being, being walked all over. You're enabling people. You're overly indulgent or overly permissive. You understand what I'm trying to say here? So when it comes to God, what would happen if I only saw the, the infinity side? He's unapproachable. He kind of scares me, to be honest. It's why would he care at all about me when he has the entire universe in the palm of his hand? There's no room for my hand in his when he's got the universe there. No, there's an intimate side that counterbalances that. But then don't, as you correct, please don't overcorrect. Because what if he's all intimacy and no infinity? Well, then I think sometimes we take him for granted. Uh, it's almost like God, he's too buddy-buddy almost. And we don't respect or revere or reverence him in the way that we should. We maybe pre we presume upon his grace. Ah, he's, you know, he's just a forgiving type. You can kind of take advantage of that. No, there needs to be that holy fear, but also that relational faith. There needs to be a balance of the infinite and the intimate. When I was a little kid, my, we lived in Texas. And my dad was the plant manager for a Frito-Lay plant. He was the chip king. <laughs> and I'm so glad when daddy comes home, you better believe it because he's always bringing chips with him. And that happened to be my, my like seven and eight year old days. And so I was a Cub Scout and we would go on field trips to the plant and I'd be eating Doritos off the conveyor belt. It was awesome. But I remember going up to dad's office, which looked out over the factory floor, kind of surveying his domain and realizing my dad's in charge of all of this. Now, as a seven or eight year old, that was mind blowing. Uh, there was the infinite aspect and I came away thinking, my dad has a lot on his plate, which made it all the more meaningful when that same dad would come home from work where he ran the factory to go run around the front yard with a seven-year-old kid that just wanted to play with dad. I am so grateful for a father who balanced the infinite with the intimate and that he was willing to come down from his level to play on mine. And to understand what my daughter was trying to paint and what I'm trying to convey and what the Lord is trying to reveal to Moses. Do you know who I am? Can you balance the infinite and the intimate here? It's actually fascinating when you think of that in Joseph Smith's own, own time period. His mom was a Presbyterian and his dad was leaning towards universalism. And talk about an unproven contrary at home. No wonder he was leaning Methodist himself, because that was the closest uh, combination that he had to that point. The restored gospel would balance it uh, even more perfectly. But Presbyterianism is Calvinist, and Calvinist religion is all about the infinite and not the intimate. Calvinism, that, there's Jonathan Edwards and, and sinners in the hands of an angry God, where he just looks down on you like with loathing, like some spider he's dangling over the rotting pit of hell. Uh, now, in Calvinism's defense, 
what it was trying to do was guard against the buddy-buddy, God's just a little bit ahead of us along the, the path. It was trying to, to guard and secure the sovereignty of God. And I respect Calvinism for that. Unfortunately, it was too far on one extreme. And, and society sensed that. And so it started to correct. And Calvinism started turning into Arminianism, but that eventually led to more of a universalism. Sorry for all the isms. But universalism was more of a eh, universal salvation. We're all going to make it. If Calvinism was God hardly saves anybody, then universalism was an overcorrection, and he saves everybody. And so what's there to worry about? You see how Calvinism was all infinite with no intimate, and now universalism is more of the opposite? The all the intimate, oh, it just saves everyone. And not enough of the infinite that but we have to honor that sovereignty and keep his commandments and, and rely upon that grace. What, what amazes me about Joseph Smith is here he is caught between Scylla and Charybdis. That he's, he's poised between the poles of mom and dad. And the Lord reveals to him how to strike the balance. So how's this for trying to lay them out side by side? The infinite and the intimate, on the first we see God's transcendence, that he is so far beyond anything we could perceive with natural man eyes. But on the intimate side is God's imminence, that he is willing to condescend to come down to our level. On one side, it is almighty God, but on the other, it is heavenly Father with all the intimacy that that relationship entails. On the one hand, you see God's omnipotence and omniscience, but on the other, you see his omnibenevolence. Now, there's a word you never use. But as far as his infinite side, omnipotence, all-powerful. Omniscience, all-knowing. But omnibenevolence means all-loving. It's why he does what he does. It's what he does with his power and knowledge. How about this one? On the infinite side, he is the creator of worlds without number. We'll see that specifically in Moses chapter 1. But on the intimate side, he, not just, he doesn't just number the worlds. He numbers the hairs of your head. On the one hand, you see awe. On the other, you see approachability. We feel reverence, but we can establish relationship. You see both sides beautifully in the Savior's final hours. Because from the cross, what does he say? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? In other words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, there's the infinite. But what did he say the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane? As he pled for a different cup to drink than the bitter one. Abba, Father, if it be possible. Eli means my God. Abba means Father. And in such an intimate way, some have translated it as daddy. To understand Jesus caught between God's infinitude as well as the intimate connection he had with his Father in heaven. Eli and Abba. Put those side by side and you have the God that we worship. And to me, the beauty of proving that contrary is whichever side of the spectrum you happen to be on, you can self-correct. If you are afraid of God's omnipotence, then lean into his approachability. 
If on the other hand, you find yourself not taking God seriously enough, then lean in the direction of infinity and understand who he really is. There's a justice on the infinite side and a mercy on the intimate side. It, a divinity and a humanity, a father in heaven and a mortal Mary, it, Christmas and Easter all coming together in this divine condescension. It's all in this, this proving of the divine contrary. And it's one that God is going to introduce to Moses in beautiful ways. So go with me into verse 1. The words of God which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain. The fact that God would condescend to speak to him speaks of God's, the intimate side. But the fact God would have to catch Moses up into a high mountain. You can't stay on your lowly level. You need to get closer to me because here I am in this infinite expanse. You understand he's trying to balance this? I will speak to you. Intimate. Come up to me. Infinite. In verse 2, he saw God face to face and talked with him. There's intimate. But the fact that the glory of God had to be upon Moses so he could endure his presence, well, there's a reminder of the infinite. In verse 3, behold, I am the Lord God Almighty. Endless is my name. I'm without beginning of days or end of years. Is not this endless? Do you understand my infinite side? the Almighty God, and yet, verse 4, Behold, thou art my Son. There's the intimate. Over and over throughout these first few verses, balancing out, going back side by side to side, trying to help Moses find the middle. Yes, I'm Almighty. Yes, I'm endless. But I'm also your Father. And Moses, you are my Son. Wherefore, look, I will show thee the workmanship of mine hands, but not all. For my works are without end, and also my words, they never cease. The infinite, I have endless work. The intimate, can I show you a portion of it? I'll let you see a peak of all that I survey. In verse 5, no man can behold all my works, except he behold all my glory. No man can behold all my glory, and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. But, verse 6, swing the pendulum. I have a work for thee. Moses, my son. You see, no one can wrap their head around all my work. There's my infinite side. But you can actually participate in part of my work, Moses. That's the intimate side. And again, we're leading forward to that. This is my work and my glory. So as he talks about work and glory in five, again, they're synonymous. You can't behold all my works. You can't behold all my glory. Again, I, I, they're all the same thing to me. And so I want you to engage in this work yourself and get a portion of that glory yourself as well. What a beautiful balance. He goes on in verse 6, Thou art in the similitude of mine only begotten. Now talk about intimate. I made you the way I made the Savior. That you and he are closer than you think. Then again, you're also further than you could imagine. Uh, don't collapse the distance uh, at the expense of honoring that, uh, that, that divine respect and reverence. So on the intimate side, you're in the similitude of, of mine only begotten. But on the infinite side, mine only begotten is and shall be the Savior. For he is full of grace and truth. Remember that grace for grace and progressing grace to grace until we receive a fullness. That's the NC 93. Well, here... 
the Savior, my only begotten, he's full of grace and truth. There's the infinite. You, you're made like him, but you're not quite there yet. So keep growing up in God. Keep living into that. You are partial grace and truth. He's the fullness. And another set of pairs. And he is and shall be the Savior. That's kind of mind-blowing doctrine too, since Moses is a BC saint. I understand he shall be the Savior. But he already is? Oh yeah. He's about to save the people from Egypt. He's about to save you from Lucifer. We'll see in the next page. Uh, he's always been the Savior. Amulek said the atonement was infinite and eternal, so it stretches back in all directions. Uh, Alma 13 talks about our premortal redemption through a preparatory redemption for such. Oh, even before Christ performed the atonement, that infinite atonement was at work. That's amazing. Uh, innocent again as, we're, as we come to earth. That's DNC 93. It, it, mind-blowing doctrine here. Again, to establish the infinite side of our relationship with God. Now, on the next page, he goes on. In verse 7, Now behold, this one thing I show unto thee, Moses, my son. Thou art in the world, now I show it unto thee. And Moses looks, and he sees the world upon which he's created. In the middle of 8, it says that he beheld the world and the ends thereof. Now, what does he mean by ends? Because we talk about the ends of the earth. And that might be what he's suggesting here, because he goes on to say, all the children of men which are and which were created. So he's seeing everything. He's seeing the ends of the earth. But we also talk about ends in terms of ends and means. And so what are the ends of things? What's my purpose? What's the intention of all of this? And I think he sees that ends as well. And that goes back to God's work and glory. It's to bring everybody home. So I need you to see everybody out there, but also see the intent which is to bring everybody home to me. Are you, are you getting this, Moses? Because you're going to be engaged in the work. I have work for you to do, my son, in the similitude of my only begotten. This is the family business, is bringing to pass immortality and eternal life. No wonder he greatly marvels and wonders, because I think he's finally coming to, to strike that balance between the infinite and the intimate. My hand is in God's hand, but his hand is, is all-encompassing as well. This is mind-blowing. And, and surely enough, his, his mind is blown. Nine and ten, I love what happens. The, the presence of God withdraws from Moses. This is the end of round one of Revelation. We're going to see round two later on. And what happens in between is really important. But this is the end of round one. His glory is no longer upon Moses. Moses is left unto himself. And as soon as that happens, he falls unto the earth. Okay? Remember, he was caught up to an exceedingly high mountain. Now he's left on his own. And then in 10, it was for the space of many hours before he again received his natural strength unto man. Sound familiar? Because that was Joseph Smith's experience after the first vision. That was Joseph Smith's experience after the angel Moroni's visit. Uh, or Sidney Rigdon's experience after section 76. It just saps your, your physical strength because you've been leaning into such spiritual strength in the, in the glory of God. Well, as a result, what's Moses' response? I love the end of 10. He says, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. He even says that he said it unto himself. I picture him just kind of like still mind blown and practically uh, unconscious and just kind of mumbling to himself like, What? I'm nothing. That, that's never crossed my mind. Now, what we need to do now is shift 
from a divine set of contraries to a mortal set of contraries. And they, they relate to one another. Okay, because what Moses just said on the one hand makes perfect sense. And the other, it's like, what, what are you talking about, Moses? Now, on the one for him to say, I, the thought that man was nothing had never crossed my mind before suggests that he had a pretty high opinion of himself. Uh, in divinity school, they talked about what is your theological anthropology? Uh, and what they mean by that is from a religious perspective, how do you define human nature? Is it high or low? Do you consider, I mean, universalism would say, hi, well, yeah, we're all worth saving. Calvinism would say low, like, no, we're all depraved from the, from the very get-go. Well, for Moses, what's your theological anthropology? What do you consider man to be? And for him, the thought that we're nothing never crossed my mind. Now, think of this literally from a perspective of a boy being raised in Pharaoh's court. I spent a semester in the Middle East, in Israel as a student in college, and we got to make a trip to, to Egypt. Seeing the pyramids was amazing, but honestly, I was even more mind-blown by the Temple of Karnak in Luxor. It's further south. You go up the Nile quite a ways, and there you get to Luxor. And the Temple of Karnak is... I can't believe that human beings were able to make it. I mean, I still don't know how they made the pyramids, but the... the, the the monumental architecture, the size of the columns that would have held up the roof was just breathtaking, awe-inspiring. But who was that awe directed to? To human beings, to the ancient Egyptians. Like, how did they do this? It's, I, I've said this to my students before, that we tend to worship the creator of the world that we inhabit. And what I mean by that is if you live in a in a purely man-made environment, literally or philosophically, we've come up with some pretty amazing stuff. And so you end up worshiping ourselves. I mean, if you walk through the streets of Manhattan until your, your neck gets a cramp <laughs> looking at the, high, the skyscrapers and so on, if you see some of the, the wonders, the man-made wonders of the world, yes, you, you greatly marvel and wonder, but it's at man. And that would have been Moses growing up, like, look what we can pull off. This is pretty impressive. We are pretty impressive. And so from that, to be introduced to the God of glory and to see the world, there's a difference between man-made wonders and natural wonders. And if you inhabit that, that world, the natural world, then you worship the God who created it. And you stand in awe in front of the Grand Canyon or staring up at the sequoias, or looking at the immensity of space as Moses is getting the chance to do. Man, I thought the Temple of Karnak was something. <laughs> Talk about man's puny arm. I just saw the Missouri River, I mean, to borrow that language from Joseph Smith. Uh, forget what we've been able to pull off. Uh, we made the pyramids, but you made the planets. And to sense that, when my youngest daughter first saw the Milky Way and just how milky it can get, she didn't know how to describe what she was feeling. She kept saying, oh no, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. And my oldest daughter, who, who painted the, infinite in, uh, the intimate infinity and who loves, knows all the constellations and loves that, that part of the universe, was just kind of smiling and pointing out the pictures that God had painted in the sky. Oh, hold on to your, that sense of the infinite 
but let me introduce you to the intimate that's behind it all. Now, that's part of it. He's gra grappling with God's contrary, but you also start to see Moses grappling with his own. Because on the one hand, I'm nothing. And I just want to go, Moses, God just told you you're everything. What are you talking about? That, that you're God's son. That you are created in the similitude of his only begotten. That you're worth worlds. That, his, that the ends thereof, maybe that's it. When you see the ends of all of creation, like how small you are. But when you see the ends in terms of the point of creation, then it's all about you. And, and that, the thought that man is nothing, coupled with the thought that man is everything, that's exactly the contrary that God is trying to help Moses wrap his head and heart around. If God's contrary is the infinite and the intimate, humanity's contrary is what I call dust and divinity. Again, it goes back to that theological anthropology I mentioned. Is humanity inherently evil or inherently good? And look around, and what would the answer be? Mm, yes. Eh, both. That this dust and divinity is depravity on one hand, but divine potential on the other. Wrestling with our nothingness, as King Benjamin says. At the same time, we recognize the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. If we know our dust, we rely on inspiration. But if we sense our divinity, we exercise our agency. And inspiration and agency is a whole other contrary we need to prove. On the dust side, we, we promise God our obedience. But on the divinity side, we also lean into our own initiative. The power is in you. Your agents unto your, yourselves, he says. We feel humility because of our dust, but we feel confidence. We feel faith in God because of our divinity. There is meekness, but there is also great power. And God wants to infuse us with both. When, when Roman military commanders would come home triumphant to Rome after some great military victory, there would typically be a slave in the chariot alongside him, proving a contrary, doing two things at once. On the one hand, he would hold over the head of this victorious general the, the laurel wreath, the crown of conquest, and simultaneously would be whispering in this general's ear, memento mori, which means remember you are mortal, or remember you shall die. I love the mental image of that slave because he's proving the contrary for the general. You're everything and you're nothing. Keep them both in mind. There was a, a Polish rabbi years ago that talked about the need for every coat to have two pockets and each pocket to have its own piece of paper. And on one piece of paper, it says, remember that you are dust and ashes. And on the other piece of paper, it reads, but for your sake, the world was created. And this wonderful uh, Polish rabbi said, the key to life is knowing which piece of paper to pull out and to look at when. That's the power of contraries in general. If you're feeling despondent, remember that you are worth worlds. If you're pre feeling prideful, then remember that you are dust. Moses is trying to find this middle ground of where he balances his own divinity and humanity just as he is trying to balance God's infinite and intimate natures. Now, the closer we get to that kind of balance, 
the more concerned the adversary becomes. Because nobody loves to ruin, to uncouple contraries, or to push us in one direction or the other quite like the adversary. And the, for him, the beauty of contraries is he doesn't care which way you go. He doesn't care if you fall off the straight and narrow path to the left or to the right, as long as you fall off. And so he'll try both perspectives. Uh, increasing infinite at the expense of intimate, or vice versa. Increasing your divinity at the expense of your dust, or vice versa. He'll try either one. And so no, notice what happens next. And like I said, we just saw the first round of revelation. There's going to be a second round of revelation, but to get there, Moses is going to have to endure and overcome the test that takes place in the middle. And that's overcoming the adversary. Now, verse 12, it came to pass that when Moses had said these words, behold, Satan came tempting him, saying, Moses, son of man, worship me. Now, we're going to see, speaking of rounds, we're going to see several rounds of this, this the, the tempter's snare. And this first one seems to be really calm and quiet. The second one is going to be much more intense. Uh, verse 12 is, he just comes in, son of man, worship me. It's not till you get to verse 19 that Satan cries with a loud voice and he rants upon the earth and he commands saying, I am the only begotten, worship me. Now his language is very similar in both. He ends verse 12, worship me. He ends verse 19, worship me. That's what he's after the same goal no matter what. God's goal is always our exaltation. Satan's goal is always his own. That I want to be higher. I want to be above all things. That's why he was trying to usurp the throne of God even in pre-mortality. But his approach is so different. The first one, nice and calm. Hey, Moses, worship me. The second, crying, ranting, loud. Does that sound a lot like 2 Nephi 28? When Nephi sees the last days and sees what the adversary is going to be doing. And on the one hand, he will try to lull and pacify us. And on the other hand, he will try to stir us up to anger and rage in the hearts of the children of men. Interesting, those two sides. I've seen it throughout Scripture whenever it couples mocking and persecuting. You see it in Joseph Smith's day where he was mocked and reviled. You see it in Jesus Christ where he is mocked and crucified. You see it often, anytime you look up the word mock in Scripture, almost always hand in hand, there's some kind of more overt persecution. And as I was wrestling with that, trying to understand how the adversary attacks our faith, for example, I realized, oh, I see that every time I look at the computer screen, because there's a minimize button right next to a maximize button, right next to a close button. I guess Satan has the same computer. Because the mockery is to minimize, and the, the persecute is to maximize. And either way, the goal is to just close it all out and close it all down. Uh, I've seen that in anti-Mormonism and anti-religious rhetoric, that you either minimize it and say, it's no big deal, it's not even worth thinking about, it's just laughable, move on. Or to maximize it, that this is the scariest thing and what we're up against and we have to, we have to destroy it as quickly as we can. It's like, make up your mind. It's like when people say Joseph Smith was an idiot. He made all these stupid mistakes in the Book of Mormon when he wrote it, quote-unquote. And then others like, oh, he must have been just this genius to somehow to be able to weave together all these threads of, of Old Testament perspective into this book that's so, so complex. Make up your mind. Is he an idiot or a savant? It, it, me? Eh, neither. He's a prophet. Translated by the gift and power of God. 
Well, in, on the one hand, Satan will lull you away thinking there's nothing to worry about. And on the other hand, he will work you up into a frenzy to the point that you are paralyzed by fear. See, Satan's working on contraries. He just doesn't want to couple them. He wants to do one or the other, but he doesn't care which. It's even interesting that in the verse 12 version, he says, son of man, trying to lower Moses. Forget son of God, you're son of man. And on the other, I am the only begotten, trying to elevate self. Whether he elevates above or lowers us, either way, there's going to be a change of elevation and a change of self-perception. You're just the son of man. You're all dust with no divinity. So cow to my infinite nature. And there's no intimacy on the adversary side as far as trying to help us in any positive way. Uh, by the way, uh, by the end of this story, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, but by the end of it, when Satan is finally cast out for good, it takes like four attempts on Moses' part. But when he's finally successful, notice the adversary's response in 22. Satan cries with a loud voice, with weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, which is usually used to describe those who follow him. So yeah, like father, like son on his side too. But he finally departs. And then 23 is interesting. Now of this thing, Moses bore record, but because of wickedness, it's not had among the children of men. In other words, Moses really lived this experience and he really wrote it down, but nobody has a record of it until Joseph restores it. Why? Because of wickedness. They don't know about this. You see, when Joseph was wrestling with the Josephsma translation and trying to understand the Bible for himself, he said that he trusted the Bible when it was originally produced. But three problems crept up in the meantime. Uh, ignorant translators, careless transcribers, and designing and corrupt priests. And that priests can go beyond just the religious realm. There can be ideological or political or economic priests as well. And so the, what interesting to me is the first two, there's nobody to blame. It's like nobody's fault. It's just human error. I didn't know how to translate that well, sorry. Or I didn't transcribe it accurately because I skipped a line and oopsie, but I didn't mean to. It's the third one, there's guilt. And someone wicked that doesn't want the righteousness to shine through. Well, based on verse 23, why are we missing Moses chapter one? It wasn't an ignorant translator or a, a careless transcriber. Because of wickedness, this is not had among the children of men. And it makes sense. Why wouldn't the adversary want us to have it? Because he gets beat by a mere mortal. This is not one of his better games. And so let's, can we erase the game film? Can we tape over that with a better moment? Well, what interests, what interests me about that is to me, there's a great irony that Mr. Egotism himself, pride personified, doesn't want us to know about him. And it is interesting how little we actually get to see the adversary in the Old Testament. He's much more prevalent in the Book of Mormon, in the Doctrine and Covenants, even in the New Testament. But it's interesting that because of wickedness, stories like this just aren't there. And to me, that irony is that he who wants all the world to worship him, at times prefers to remain invisible. Uh, better not to be seen than to be seen in this light. Yikes. Uh, there is certain bit, uh, some, an adversary or opposition in absentia. Maybe we call it that way. And that actually comes up in 2 Nephi 28 also. Yes, he'll lull and, and pacify. Yes, he'll rage and stir up. But also he'll say things like, 
I'm no devil, because there is none. <laughs> Interesting that you see all three of those right here in this, this first battle between, between Moses and, and Lucifer as well. Now, what does Moses do to come off conqueror? I love this as far as, you know, speaking of game film, Satan wants to erase it. Well, I don't. We need to study this in depth because it shows someone overcoming the adversary. And that's exactly what we need to be able to accomplish. If we ever hope to have another round of revelation where we really learn what God is trying to do to bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. So notice this. First thing that Satan does is to question Moses's identity and try to get his focus on Satan instead of on God. Then 13, Moses looks at him and says, Who art thou? For behold, I am a son of God in the similitude of his only begotten. Where is thy glory that I should worship thee? Now, a lot, of, a lot is going to happen in these next few verses. We first see him question, I mean, you question my identity? Let me question yours, Lucifer. Who art thou? Then he says, I'm a son of God. Why'd you call me son of man? God just told me I'm his son. In fact, I'm in the similitude of his only begotten. There's something powerful about Moses' memory and holding on to the truths that he's learned from God. Now, that's true generally. Remembering the experiences we've had with God, the words of God, the commandments of God, the truths of God will always help us navigate evil when it presents itself. But specifically this one, remember who you are. Remember what God has said about you. It's actually interesting that when you see Lucifer attack Jesus, and he bookends the ministry of Christ with the same attack. So you see it in Matthew 4 at the temptations. When change stones to bread, jump off the temple, come worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But how does he preface it? If thou art the son of God, then change these stones to bread. What's he, how's he doing it? He's, getting, he's trying to get Jesus to question his divinity, his identity. If you're really the son of God. And then fast forward, and at the crucifixion, what do those who mock and persecute Jesus say? If, hmm, there's that word again, if you're really the Son of God, then come down from the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. So interesting. And again, to bookend the ministry of Jesus, Satan is, getting, is trying to get Jesus to question his own identity as the Son of God. Same thing here with Moses. But Moses remembers. In fact, back to that Matthew 4 version when he says, if you're the Son of God, change these stones to bread. Remember what Jesus says? So I'm not going to do that because it is written. He's going to quote scripture here. It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. Now, we always focus on that bread alone part because the temptation was to change the stones to bread. But think about the other part. I'm supposed to live on what God has said to me. So I don't need to perform some kind of miracle that's self-serving to convince myself I'm God's son because I already have his word that I am. I'm not going to live by some miracle of bread. I'm going to live on, on the miracle of God identifying me as his son. Because Moses, oh, excuse me, Matthew 4 comes right after Matthew 3, right? That's how the numbers work. And what happened in Matthew 3? The baptism of Jesus. When the voice of God came from the heavens saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased I love that because when Jesus says, I don't, I'm not going to live by bread alone. I'm going to live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. What was the very last word that proceeded forth from the mouth of God? 
Christ's divinity. It's like Moses, I mean, uh, Satan, I know who I am. I don't have to prove it to you. I don't have to prove it to myself. God has already proven it to me. And Moses here is saying the same thing. Now, there's more when he said, who are you? And where is thy glory? Because then in 14, when he says, I couldn't look upon God, except his glory should come upon me. I had to be transfigured before him. But you, I can look upon you in the natural man. Isn't it so, surely? He goes on in 15, same kind of thing. In the middle where he says, where, uh, where is thy glory? For it is darkness unto me. I can judge between thee and God. He says the same thing in 18, by the way. His glory has been upon me, wherefore I can judge between him and thee. Now, this is one of my favorite oh, counter tactics as far as overcoming the adversary. It reminds me of a, a talk that Elder Holland gave that is a masterpiece. He, he said, it, it's called, Cast Not Away, Therefore Thy Confidence. And in that great talk, he talks about, he in fact uses Moses 1 as an example, uh, that the adversary is usually very quick to the punch. As soon as you have a spiritual experience, he wants to jump all over it to nip it in the bud. Uh, and you see that in all kinds of different examples, this one being a, a, key, a key text. And I love what Elder Holland said, it's true. As soon as you have a spiritual experience, gear up. As soon as you've committed to join the church, prepare for opposition. As soon as you uh, commit to go on a mission or get married in the temple, opposition is going to come out of the woodwork. Satan is banking on uh, momentum or inertia. And it, this object had, had been at rest. Let's try to get it back to rest as quickly as possible. But there's something else here uh, in addition to what Elder Holland taught. And while on the one hand, Satan's timing is really good as far as trying to, to stop things in the very initial stages. On the other hand, his timing couldn't be worse because it's too close to the experience that was so powerful. There's a principle called juxtaposition. And when you juxtapose, you're putting two things side by side. I used to do this with my students where I'd take two shades of gray that were really, really close, put them on opposite ends of the room and ask, is it the same color? And they go, yep, gray, gray. And then once you juxtapose them, then they're like, oh, different shades. They're not the same. And what, what Moses is experiencing here is the juxtaposition of light and darkness. And, that, and that's what he's pointing out to the adversary. It's like, Satan, you came a little early because the light still hasn't totally faded and your darkness stands out in stark relief. It's like <laughs> Lucifer... I mean, I know your name means light bearer, but it does, you're not bearing a whole lot of light anymore. Your glory is darkness unto me. And yet I was just filled with the glory of God. Uh, I love when he says, I had to be transfigured just to endure his presence. And you, I don't even need sunglasses for. <laughs> it's like SPF infinity to be with God. And you... It's like somebody shining their, remember the old days where you had a little wa a watch light? Uh, hilarious. Just like, that, that's all you've got? <laughs> Seriously? Where is thy glory? Oh no, I can judge between this. And to me, that is one of the great keys of being able to navigate deception or overcome faith crises is when was the last time you really had a powerful spiritual experience? Because if it's been a long time, then no wonder it's easy to forget. And no wonder Satan's voice sounds so convincing when it's been a long time since you've listened to the voice of God. 
Remember how Jacob said it when Sherem, the Antichrist, comes? That's, that's the Book of Mormon's first example of, of light versus darkness in terms of, of, of people. Well, I guess Laman and Lemuel and Nephi and Sam, right? So strike what I said. They're all over the place. But in terms of the first official Antichrist of the Book of Mormon, Jacob and Sherem is your, is your scene. And when Jacob says, Sherem came because he wanted to shake me from the faith, and then he says, but I couldn't be shaken, it's his example that made me think of the name for this, for this uh, YouTube channel, Unshaken, because Jacob was unshaken in the face of someone who literally wanted to bring him down. Earthquakes in diverse places. And, but what does Jacob say? <laughs> he tried to shake me, notwithstanding the many miracles I'd seen, and not, notwithstanding the ministering of angels. And I had heard the voice of God speaking unto me in very deed from time to time. Therefore, I could not be shaken. So you see what Jacob's approach was? Sherem, I don't care just how slick your philosophies sound. I don't care that you have such flattering words. Your voice is hollow compared to the voice of God. And I hear that frequently. To me, it's all about the frequency of our spiritual experiences. And if you're being dragged down the rabbit hole with anti-Mormon literature, for example, do you give God equal time? Some of my students have asked, how do you read all that anti-Mormonism and not get shaken? And for me, I often say, well, <laughs> Elder Ballard has said many times, give God equal time. And I get to study the scriptures and teach them like 40 hours a week at least. God has way more of my time and attention than the anti-stuff I have to sift through to help people navigate their doubts. I get to hear the voice of God from time to time. I get to behold his glory. And that's my saving grace. It's meant to be the saving grace for all of us. It's how we learn to judge how do I feel when I'm in the temple versus how do I feel when I'm in, in Babylonian places? How do I feel when I'm serving others compared to how do I feel when I'm serving self? How do I treat others when I see them as children of God and dust and divinity combine instead of the, the social Darwinism that a Korahor wants to, to pawn off on me? Oh, if you'll juxtapose light and darkness, the darkness will lose its glow. Believe me. Now there's more to see here. Verse 15, Blessed be the name of my God, for his spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from me. That's so beautiful. He, I think Moses probably thought it had, because he was so blown away by the spirit in his first epiphany. And then when the spirit withdraws, when he's left to himself and he falls, comes crashing back down to earth, no wonder Satan picks that time. You're back on my level. I can attack you now. But the fact that Moses realizes, wait a minute, it's, maybe I'm not completely on my own after all, that his spirit hasn't entirely withdrawn from me. I hope that even in your moments of, of sin, and, and feeling so cut off from God because you've cut, him, cut yourself away. I think even in our worst days, the Spirit hasn't altogether withdrawn. He's still there fighting for us and even fighting with us if need be. That was Mormon's words, remember? 
when his people were so wicked that even he lost faith and hope, though he never lost charity, he said, he warned them, I fear lest the spirit would cease striving with you. Striving, strife, fighting. Spirit's working on you. He's fighting you because he hasn't given up on you yet. But I'm worried that he's about to and that he'll cease striving. I'm worried that he will completely withdraw himself, but he hasn't yet. Especially if you grew up in the church and you've been a pretty good person for the most of your life, losing a portion of the Spirit sometimes feels like you've lost it all. Or sometimes not feeling the Spirit, we think we're not feeling the Spirit when reality, our floor is so high, comparatively speaking, that we still have the Spirit to some degree, just not to the degree that we're used to on better days especially for anyone who might be suffering with sin or with mental illness, since mental illness interferes with the ability to feel the Holy Ghost as well. Please hold on and hold out for better days. Please trust that the Spirit hath not altogether withdrawn from you. Elder Renlund gave a great message on receptor sites in cells that you can be surrounded by the nutrient the body needs, but if it can't get into the cell, then it sure feels absent. It's just your receptor site's been blocked. And he brought up sin and mental illness as two things that can block our receptor sites from the love of God. I have a feeling that you have the Spirit more than you realize, even if you can't feel it right now. Just continue on, as Moses did. Now, he says at the end, God said to me, so not only did he say who I am, and I'm remembering that, he told me to worship him and, and him only thou shalt serve. By the way, that solves another mystery from the New Testament. When Jesus is tempted with stones to bread, Jesus quotes a scripture. When he's quoted, uh, or when he's told, throw yourself from the temple, he quotes a scripture. And those two scriptures are fairly easy to identify in the Old Testament. But the third one, when he says, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus says, no, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. And that's one that leaves most biblical scholars scratching their head, like, where, where does it say that? I mean, I guess there's some texts in the Old Testament that we can sort of cobble together to say that's the message he's getting across. But if you ask Jesus for chapter and verse, where would he go? Well, best answer would be Moses chapter 1, which isn't in your Bible, but it's in my bosom. To me, it's amazing that that's, that's the closest approximation to what Jesus said to resist the third temptation that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. And no, I don't think Joseph Smith was studying Matthew 4 one day and said, huh, nobody really knows where that verse is. I should make up a story where, where it's found. And then voila, I'll look like a genius. No, Joseph didn't know the Bible well enough to do that. Uh, but it's amazing that it's in here. Well, then what does he do? In yeah, verse 16, uh, Moses says to Lucifer, get thee hence. In other words, get out of here. Uh, if, if I can't leave you, then you've got to leave me, but get out. And then he says, deceive me not, for God said unto me, thou art after the similitude of mine only begotten. So again, come back to my identity. Come back to what God has said to me. Draw back on spiritual experience, and you'll be able to overcome deception. Interesting he'd use that word. It's the one that keeps popping up in Matthew, uh, Joseph Smith Matthew which is the JST of Matthew 24, Signs of the Times. 
And one of the defining signs of the times is the deception of the very elect. I love that Moses sees through it. Again, juxtaposing darkness and light, it's not that hard. But no, you're deceiving me. Because what you're saying doesn't agree with what God has already said. According to Joseph Matthew, how do you not get deceived? He said, he who treasureth, whoso treasureth up the word shall not be deceived. And there you see Moses doing exactly that. I treasured that word and I won't be deceived as a result. Then in 17, he also gave me commandments when he called unto me out of the burning bush. So that's how we know this happens after that burning bush experience. He said, call upon God in the name of mine only begotten and worship me. And so that's what I'm going to do. I remember God's words about my identity. I know his words about, uh, about his commandments. You see what, what Moses is remembering? Identity, commandments, specifically the call to prayer, specifically the call to Christ in the name of mine only begotten. That's going to come back to bless Moses in just a moment. Then he says in 18, I will not cease to call upon God. I have other things to inquire of him. I love that phrase. As one who loves questions, as one who invites my students often to ask me what's ever on your mind, a question is not a sign of doubt. It's not a sign of apostasy or rebellion. It's if any of you lack knowledge, that's it. You lacked some knowledge. If, you, if any of you lack wisdom, you lacked some wisdom. If any of you lack information, you lacked some information. That's fine. Ignorance is not a sin. So inquire. And what I love about this is Moses is like, of course I'm going to keep inquiring. I don't know everything yet. I, I, I want to keep the conversation going. That's a beautiful principle. Often when we doubt, when we wrestle, when we struggle, we don't think God's ever going to give us an answer. We have, I've talked about this before with my three shelves, and the shelf that we label revelations yet to come is the one they label, label doubt. And it's like things that God will never tell me. Why? Because he's not telling me anything now on shelf two, and I'm starting to forget that he ever told me anything in the past in shelf number one. No, I have other things to inquire of him. And I know he answers me because he's done it and does it and therefore will do it. And so I'm not going to cease calling upon God. I want to, to extend the conversation and maintain the relationship. So what does he say at the end of 18? Depart hence Satan. So that's the second time he's told him to leave. Now, 19 we already read. That's when he, uh, Satan has his temper tantrum. Uh, and notice Moses' response. This gets a little dicey. In 20, it came to pass that Moses began to fear exceedingly. And as he began to fear, he saw the bitterness of hell. And that's one of the adversary's favorite tools also, is to play upon our fear. Our fear of God's infinitude without realizing his, his intimacy. Our fear of our own dust, not knowing of our divinity. Our fear of what other people will think of us, and therefore to appeal to our shame. Oh, there's so many things to fear out there, but the fear leads us to see hell. It's faith that leads us to see heaven. And so what happens? Nevertheless, calling upon God. Remember he told him to do that? He received strength. That's always the promise. And he commanded, saying, Depart from me, Satan. It's the third time he said it. This one God only will I worship, which is the God of glory. I have an eye single to God's glory. You have none. And so I will not worship you. Leave. Now, 
Three times he's told him to leave, and three times Satan has refused to. In 21, we finally see the difference. Now Satan began to tremble. The earth shook. Moses received strength. He called upon God. See, it just tagged him. He keeps going back. The more I call, the more strength comes. And finally, at the end of 21, it works because of one difference. Yes, he says, depart hence, Satan, for the fourth time. But what did he say? In the name of the only begotten, depart hence, Satan. That's the difference. No wonder back in 17 when he said, you must call upon God in the name of my only begotten, he finally did it right. He wasn't just flexing his own mortal muscles. It's like, uh, Moses, remember man is nothing? That's your dust talking. <laughs> Lean into my divinity and trust in the power of Jesus Christ, the light of the world, to dispel the darkness. We'll see it in a couple of weeks when we get to Moses 4 that it was by the power of mine only begotten that I cast Satan out. That's God's words. So, wow, even in premortality, it was through the power of Christ that Satan was expelled. And it's through that same power that he's expelled from our lives as well. Teach them to withstand every temptation of the adversary with their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what Alma says? How do we overcome the adversary? How do we eliminate sin? Not by flexing our, mu our muscles, not by gritting our teeth or clenching our fists. It's by submitting to the Lord instead of submitting to the adversary. It's yielding our will to him and having it reconciled to his. That's how we do it. It's trusting in God's preventative power and not just in his restorative power. I think we all have great faith in the atonement's power to forgive us, but that's after the fact. If we had similar faith in his power to protect us and his power to lead us away from temptation, honestly, I think if I prayed with the same amount of intensity before a sin as I do after I've slipped into one, then there'd be a lot less slipping on my part. There's something else here in terms of Moses' persistence, which is meant to counter the persistence of the adversary. It's amazing that the devil doesn't give up, but neither does Moses. And I think in some ways the winner is just the last person standing. Uh, the loser is the first one to submit. And the interesting thing about the adversary is, yes, he's amazing when it comes to persistence. He's not that good when it comes to endurance. There's a great verse in James that says, resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hmm. Resist him and he'll run? Wow. Uh, now, does, that doesn't mean he'll run away for good. He always does seem to return, sadly. Uh, and then we have to resist him again. But if you resist him and he'll flee from you, if you stand up for to him and then he leaves and then try something different and comes back. But what he's banking on is a quick victory. In World War II, they called it Blitzkrieg, a lightning war. And if the Third Reich could just cross a border and conquer a, a, a country quickly, then there's, there's the, the opposition hasn't had time to really get up and organize itself and fight back. Well, I've seen that true in my life, and it seems true here, too, of Satan just wants a quick victory. He doesn't have any endurance. I mean, that, that's true to his nature, right? I just want, I want the easy way. I want fast victories. 
That's what he was hoping for in the war in heaven. And nope. So I would simply say, persist in pulling the plug on temptation. And the moment it arises, push back, depart hence, uh, go from me in the name of the only begotten. Call upon Christ just to get you through those, those initial moments of temptation. And it's amazing how quickly the adversary gives up. Not permanently, but he gives up. Back to Jesus at the Mount of Temptation. He doesn't sit there looking at the stones thinking, no, I shouldn't turn it into bread. I missed this 40-day fast. But, ooh, that, that rock kind of looks like a roll. Yeah, that one, ooh, croissant on that. Nope, can't do it. No, he doesn't entertain the thought. He leaves. And in fact, where does the devil get him for the second temptation? At the temple, which lets you know where Christ went to resist that temptation. Interesting. Well, he persists in this and finally comes off conqueror because of the power of Jesus Christ. So, quick review. How do we overcome the adversary based on Moses' great example? First, way back in 11, don't confine yourself to natural eyes. He, he talks about the difference between natural eyes and spiritual eyes there. And I think as I see people struggling in their faith, it's because they've confined their vision to natural eyes. There's a lot we can see with the natural eye. It's amazing. I'm grateful for science. We'll talk more about it as we go on and see this grand panoramic vision that Moses has. But science can't answer all the questions. The head is a, an amazingly powerful source of understanding. But uncoupled from the heart, there's another contrary we have to prove. God speaks to the mind and the heart, DNC 8. Uh, learn by study and also by faith. Uh, give a reason for the hope that is in you. There's so many examples of that contrary throughout Scripture. And naturalized versus spiritual sight. We need them both. So if you're going to overcome the adversary, please don't close your spiritual eyes. Uh, because natural sight alone will never allow you to see the kind of light that really dispels darkness. What else did he do? Remember what God has told you, especially what he's told you about you. Juxtapose light and darkness so that you can recognize the darkness more clearly up against the light. Stay in the spirit. Don't let it altogether withdraw. It hasn't. Have an eye single to God's glory. Recognize deception for what it is. Pull the plug on temptation and do it persistently. Remember God's commandments. Remember his call to prayer. Remember Christ. Keep the divine conversation going. Don't succumb to fear. Ask God for strength. Turn to the Lord and Satan will have to turn away from you. I remember as a freshman in college, the first time I shifted from sequential scripture study, just reading in one direction, start to finish, to topical scripture study, find a subject and just go everywhere with it. One of the first subjects I chose was Satan, which sounds weird, but I was about to leave on my mission, and sure enough, having had that epiphany to go want to serve, I was feeling all kinds of opposition. And so I studied everywhere I could find it throughout Scripture. Ended up with, I think, like 60 pages of handwritten, single-spaced notes from Scripture study on the adversary. And this piece of game film was one of my favorites. It, it still is. Now, like I said, Moses overcame. He passed his test. And as a reward, he has another round of revelation. 
It's very similar to the one he had before, but in some ways it's an echo that is intensified. It's a crescendo. And so in 24, once Satan has departed, Moses lifts up his eyes unto heaven, no more looking down into the bitterness of hell. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. Remember, he'd been filled, transfigured by it, and then lost, but not lost it entirely. And now it comes rushing back. I think in some ways, the return of the Holy Ghost will largely depend on what you do during his perceived absence. Times you don't feel guided by God just might be the time God wants to see what you'll do, quote unquote, without him. And as he sees, to me, it's like when I'm helping my kids learn to ride their bike. And if I take my hand off the, the seat and they immediately stop pedaling, I think, yeah, you're not ready to ride on your own. The only reason you're doing this is because I'm right here. I need you to see that, I need to see that you can keep pedaling. Because ultimately, I want to ride alongside you. We can really go places. And that's what God is after. Moses, what will you do without me? You won't entirely be without me. But what will you do? And as you continue, ah, then I can come rushing back. Then in 25, he calls upon the name of God, like he'd done before. He beheld his glory again, like he'd done before. Uh, it was upon him. He heard a voice saying, so again, repeat of what he had before. Blessed art thou, Moses, for I, the Almighty, have chosen thee. I'm the Almighty. There's the infinite. I know your name, Moses. There's the intimate. I have chosen thee. That first time was just to call thee, but many are called. This time is to choose thee. And that happens with fewer because they don't pass their test. They don't learn their one lesson. They don't understand that the power of heaven is only accessible through principles of righteousness. This is all DNC 121. And so you passed your test and you went from called to chosen. And then these two interesting promises in 25 and 26. First, thou shalt be made stronger than many waters, for thou shalt, they shall obey thy command as if thou wert God. And then 26, and lo, I am with thee even unto the end of thy days, for thou shalt deliver my people from bondage, even Israel my chosen. Hmm, that's an interesting one. Now, remember, we, he's already had the burning bush experience where he's called to, let, to, to set my people free. And then there's this whole, I love that, that episode. We'll study it in depth when we get to Exodus. Uh, as Moses is wrestling with his own inadequacy, I guess the thought that he was nothing had <laughs> crossed his mind a few times. Uh, but here, I will give you power over water. That will come in handy in a certain moment in your future, Moses. And you will successfully deliver my people from bondage. I mean, I just helped you deliver yourself from Satan, the, the bondage personified. Compared to him, Pharaoh's going to be a cakewalk, okay? You can do this with my help, and I'll be there to, to help you. I am with thee to the end of thy days. Then 27, the voice is still speaking. Moses starts to look around. He beholds the earth. Now, remember, he saw that earlier. But now he sees all of it, not a single particle did he miss. He discerns it by the Spirit of God. Again, spiritual sight versus natural eyes. Uh, in 28, he beholds all the inhabitants thereof. Not a single soul did he miss out on. Discerns them by the Spirit of God. Numbers were great. It's like the sand of the seashore. He sees many lands in 29, each one called an earth, inhabitants on the face thereof. 
Again, this is round two of that revelation. And like the first one when he said, I saw the ends of the earth. What do you mean by that? Are we talking quantity? Are we talking geography or are we talking purpose? And again, it seems to be both because yes, I'll show you every inhabitant like the grains of sand upon the seashore. But I also want you to understand the end of this earth. What is it for? Now that's precisely Moses's question. In verse 30, he asks, tell me, I pray thee, why these things are so and by what thou madest them. Now those are two really good questions to ask when your mind is being blown. In essence, it's why and how. I just saw that I'm having the ultimate astronomy lesson here. And Abraham will have his ultimate astronomy lesson in just a moment in Abraham chapter 3. But he's seen all of this. Uh, and he wants to know why all this and how on earth. Actually, it's not even earth anymore. Uh, all of this. How'd you do it? By what did you make them? Now, those are, like I said, two really good questions to ask. But the way the Lord responds to them lets you know Oh, there's, there's, a better, there's a better way of approaching these questions. He says in 31, Behold, the glory of the Lord was upon Moses, so that Moses stood in the presence of God and talked with him face to face. And the Lord said unto Moses, For mine own purpose have I made these things. Here is wisdom. It remaineth in me. So to your question about why, his initial response is, Just trust me, Moses. Okay, it's wisdom in me. And it's going to remain in me. I'm not going to answer all of your why questions. Sorry. Uh, trust that I know what I'm doing. He's going to do the same kind of lesson and same type of approach in the book of Job, which is such a masterpiece. He shows him creation to try to get Job to trust him again. But he still doesn't answer all of Job's questions. Here, same thing. I'm not going to answer all of your questions the way you, you want me to. But I need you to learn to trust me. I am the infinite. Okay? I have a lot going on, and it all works, which means the little that I have going on, namely your little existence, it's going to work out too. I need you to trust that. And in fact, one thing that can give you hope and reassurance through the intimate is having a recognition of my infinite. I, this, this ain't my first rodeo, son. Okay, uh, You remember what, uh, what the Lord tells Brigham Young? In section 136, as the pioneers are about to begin their exodus, he introduces himself as the god of the exodus. This isn't my first trek, Brigham. I've done this before. So, this is wisdom. It's in me. And it's going to remain there. And then he said, but, but then also, in, in, again, thinking of 39, you really want the why? Well, it's to bring to pass immortality and eternal life. It's to bring you home, to be with me and like me. That's the ultimate wisdom. But then something else he says in 32, By the word of my power have I created them, which is mine only begotten Son, who is full of grace and truth. So a repeat of what he said about Jesus before. But in this time, it's Christ's role as creator. I've created them by mine only begotten. And we'll see that next week when we get into these beautiful creation accounts. Now, the interesting thing here is, did God answer Moses' questions? Well, yes and no. Why did you do it? Because it was wisdom in me. Hmm. And he'll give him more later. It's to bring to pass immortality, eternal life. Well, how'd you do it? Well, through my only begotten. 
Now, if Moses were a pure scientist, he'd say, yeah, that still doesn't quite answer my question. Um, I, I want to know process. The interesting thing is, though, the Lord typically doesn't explain process. He explains person, namely himself. When you see the man born blind that Jesus heals, and all that the Pharisees want to ask is, how did he do it? How, how, how? And it's by what means and what did he do? And this man was like, I don't know. He like touched my eyes. He put, all I know is this. I used to not be able to see. I once was blind and now I see. I know result and therefore I want to know relationship. I don't need to learn about logistics. Same thing with Enos. When Enos's guilt is swept away and he asks God, how is it done? The Lord says, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I picture Enos going, that still doesn't answer my question. What's the process of forgiveness? How does the atonement work? Can you explain the logistics of redemption? And the Lord's like, no, but I'll introduce myself to you. And I hope that's good enough. In other words, Moses, we're not going to worry about a geological or astronomical how. I want to teach you a relational how, which ends up being a who. And that who is me. Will you come to me? Because if you do, in my bosom, then everything else will start to make sense. If you can learn that one lesson, then we'll have time to answer all your other questions. I just need you to come to know and trust the teacher. Because then, without that, then no amount of lessons will do much. You see, when, I, when I've wrestled with oh, creation questions and people attacking faith based on geology or astronomy and evolution and Big Bang and those kinds of things, I have no problem with any of that because it's like, oh, does that change the who? He still hasn't told us all the how. By the word of my, my only begotten, that's, how, that's the word of my power. That's how I created it. If he chooses this means or this process, I'm totally fine with that. Christ is still behind it all. The who still stands, whatever the how and why might be. And in fact, the why is part and parcel with the who also. The why is to bring you home. The why is to exalt you. You see, I've often told my students, especially those that are in the hard sciences and they're wrestling with some of those questions, I've often said to them, there's two different sources of information and I'm going to ask different questions of those two different realms. When I have a question about process, I'll ask science. They've got a pretty good track record there. And even when they're wrong, they eventually usually correct themselves. So that's good. Okay? These paradigm shifts and like the old model of the universe has been outgrown and from Galileo to, to Copernicus or to Newton and, and Einstein and what, whoever's next, right? Uh, science is doing well uh, at correcting itself, uh, admitting mistakes. Hypoth it was only a hypothesis to begin with, right? And we're getting closer and closer to a better understanding. Awesome. I would say the same thing about, about faith as we learn line upon line and precept upon precept. Okay, we're all growing up in God here, and God is the source, the ultimate source of both of these realms, science and religion, okay? They're not at odds. But when I have a process question, I'll usually go to science. When I have a purpose question, I'll go to faith. Understand the difference?
I mean, even in terms of the process of creation, I love that verse in DNC 101 when the Lord says, when I return, I'll answer all your questions. I will reveal all things. And then he gives us a few examples, one of which is the earth and by what it was made. And I think of some people going, wait a minute, you're going to tell us how you created the earth? You already did. You did in Moses. You did in, in, in Abraham. You did in Genesis. You did in the temple. We've got four accounts of creation. And I picture the Lord smiling and going, you really thought I was going to waste scripture space or temple time on a geology lesson? <laughs> now, I, I teach theology lessons there. And we'll see this next week, the ultimate theology lessons of creation. And I don't worry about the age of the earth or the, the fossil record or, or long time in and, and space. That, that's not what he's after here. I'm trying to teach you how to come home. And that's a who and a why, not a how. So again, if I have a question about process, I'll go to science. If I have a question about purpose, I'll go to faith. If I have a question about method, I'll turn to science. If I have a question about meaning, I'll turn to faith. And even science finds itself wishing it had a better relationship with humanities to figure out, yes, we can do all kinds of things now. The question is, should we? We're starting to learn how to play God. I wish I knew God better to know how to navigate these powers. Because there's a whole ethical realm in medicine and in science that sometimes goes underappreciated. Because if we can, then why not? And might makes right, and uh-oh, we're back to Korahor again. I, I hope this is making sense. Uh, I am so grateful for the who that God has given us. It trumps any of the whys and hows. And I I'm, I'm, have full faith in that who behind creation and behind everything else. Part of that is because he has such an incredible track record. Uh, he says that in 33, Worlds without number have I created. I created them for mine own purpose, which I'll say in 39 is to bring to pass immortality and eternal life. By the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. So your world, uh, in conjunction with all these worlds without number, it's for the same purpose. It's got the same why. It's got the same who, ultimately. 34, the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. So we're going to talk about his specific instance on your specific world, because that's what he says in 35. Only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. I love what the Lord is doing in this verse, because he's trying to help Moses eliminate distractions. Uh, in some ways, when, the, when you put blinders on a horse, it's to keep them from, from noticing all the other things that they shouldn't be looking at and just focus on moving in the direction that they should. Often I'll have Q&A periods with my students and, and they'll start asking really speculative questions. Uh, you know, does God have a God? And, and the kinds of things that grow out of the King Follett discourse, for example. What does it mean that God was once like us or that we can become like him? And kind of pushing the, the limits of our knowledge. And I love those kinds of questions, but I will usually take them back to Moses 1, verse 35, and let them know that God needs to open the veil enough to blow our minds so that we know that he's got a lot going on. There's the infinite side. But also, he needs to close it back up again 
so that we can focus on what matters to us, which is navigating our, our own mortal experience. Uh, without the, the mind-blowing, we can start to think of God as kind of a provincial deity, uh, the, way, the way the Egyptians would have in Moses' day and so on. But, but, by, but if all we have is the mind-blown, then I start losing track of what I'm supposed to do from, the, from day to day to come unto God. I've, I've told my students, here's, here's Moses, let me show you everything. And as Moses is like, whoa, I want to see more, then the Lord's like, actually, no, I'm going to give you an account of this world only. That's why the creation narrative focuses on this earth and nothing else. Uh, because if you can learn to navigate your life on this planet, then you'll come home. And then, believe me, we can have a question and answer period like nothing you've ever imagined. You can ask me all the rest. I just, if, if you lose sight of how to live your daily experience, how to navigate mortality, you'll never get to the point where knowing the mysteries of, of eternity will do you any good because you, you missed the boat. I, I hope that makes sense. I, I, like I said, I love verse 35 for, for that. It focuses Moses' attention. It brings you back to the intimate as far as this world only. In the context of the infinite, but I know everything else that's going on. Beautiful proving of the contraries. So, Moses says in 36, good enough for me. Be merciful unto thy servant, O God, and tell me concerning this earth and the inhabitants thereof, and also the heavens, and then thy servant shall be content. If that's all you want to give me for now, then in thy mercy, please do so. I'll take anything I can get. The Lord then gives Moses one last view of the infinite, 37 and 38. The heavens, they are many. They cannot be numbered unto man. They are numbered unto me. They are mine. As one earth shall pass away and the heavens thereof, even so shall another come. And there is no end to my works, neither to my words. This is, this is the factory floor. This is the big picture. This is the almighty and infinite God of the universe. And yet, verse 39, to, to close this chapter on the intimate, all of this, Moses, keep it in perspective. My work and my glory is not about all of this. It's about all of you. It's to bring to pass your immortality and eternal life. So, as he says in the last few verses of this chapter, so write it down for your sake for their sake, for the faithful's sake, to understand where they, where they are in relation to all of this. Where they come from and why they're here and where they're going and, and who's behind the entire panorama. I stand in awe of the God of Moses chapter 1. But it's not awe alone, it's approachability as well. As I try to navigate my own dust and divinity divide, I am grateful to recognize both the infinite and the intimate of my Heavenly Father. Now, Moses 1 does that for Moses and for us. And then Abraham 3 does that for Abraham and all of us. The book of Abraham is such a fascinating book of Scripture. Uh, the story behind it is, is, is rich in historical detail and complicated and even controversial. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment, but what I love about Abraham 3 is it gives Abraham an experience akin to what Moses had in chapter 1. 
It's amazing how parallel these two chapters are because they are in the beginning. There was an earlier beginning. And I want you to understand who you are and who I am and how those two relate. In fact, if we were to back up and include chapter one and two in our conversation, we'll go back and do that in, in, a, later, in a later time period when we come to meet Abraham himself. But by the time you get to chapter three, he has had an experience coming to know God and he's had an incredible test and trial of his faith. And so just like Moses who had round one and then passed his test and got a, an echo uh, with a round two of Revelation, by the time you get to chapter three of Abraham, it's a similar uh, process. He's come to know God, he's passed his test, and now he's going to know God on an even deeper level. When you see things like verse 11, I, Abraham, talked with the Lord face to face as one man talketh with another, and he told me of the works which his hands had made. Doesn't that ring a bell for Moses? The face to face, the speaking with God, the showing him his works. In 12, he said unto me, my son, my son. Sound like how he introduced himself to Moses and helped Moses understand his relationship to divinity? God stretches out his hands, shows Abraham all his creation, puts his hands upon mine eyes, and I saw those things which his hands had made. Almost kind of, again, putting the blinders on in order to truly see. Uh, David B. Haight used to say that near the end of his life, one of the longest living apostles ever. And he said, the, as my sight begets, gets worse and worse, my vision becomes more and more clear. And I think in some ways, it's, it's like Moses learned about the difference between his naturalized and his spiritualized. And so God, let me cover the naturalized to help uncover the spiritualized. And he saw all those things that God's hand had made. They multiplied before mine eyes. I could not see the end thereof. And we'll have similar experiences for, for Enoch and for Joseph Smith. Uh, the, these visions that roll like an overflowing surge before prophets' minds. In 14, he's having this, this panoramic vision at night. Good time for an astronomy lesson, as we'll see in a moment. And the Lord speaks of multiplying thee and thy seed as if you could count the number of sands, so will be the number of thy seed. Remember, that was a phrase that was used for Moses as well, trying to, to focus on posterity and promise as far as God is concerned. And he tells him in 15, I'm going to show you these things before you go into Egypt so you can declare all these words. Moses was about to go back into Egypt uh, to declare some words, to, to perform a difficult mission. And here Abraham, in a similar sense, is, to me, it's fascinating, these parallel lives almost, especially between dispensation heads. Uh, as, as Joseph Smith is coming down into Egypt, so to speak, our, our limited understanding, a world in which we're in the bondage of sin, and there are certain perspectives we need on divinity and humanity, to help us navigate our way through our Egyptian experiences as we try to come back to, to Zion, to a promised land. Now, specifically here, and I'm going to try to give you the big picture of Abraham chapter 3. It is an astronomy lesson from verse 1 until, or through verse 17. And it's a fascinating astronomy lesson. I mean, ultimately, he's going to zero it in on this earth itself. And that's what we'll see in Abraham 4 and 5, the Abraham creation account. Next week, we'll compare that to the Mosaic uh, creation account and the Genesis creation account. Uh, but before we get into the specifics of this world, let me show you big picture. 
So just like we saw in the book of Moses, I need to part the veil wide enough that you see just how, just how much I have going on. Uh, and then we can drill back down into specifics of the little world that you live on, the one that ought to matter most to you. So again, uh, Abraham 3 is similar to what, he's, to what we saw in Moses 1. But the difference that I find so moving is he makes it very clear that what I'm really teaching you is not astronomy. It's theology. And, and in many ways, it's that theological anthropology we talked about of what, what are human beings like in the sight of God? What really matters here? Now, in order to do this, we need to see two words in verse 18 that unlock the entire chapter. Uh, in verse 18, he begins, How be it that he made the greater star as also... If there be two spirits, and then he goes on from there, and in the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about spirits and premortality and where we all fit in that. That phrase, as also, is the, connect, the connective tissue between the first half, which is the astronomy lesson, and the second half, which is the theology lesson. And basically what he just told us in verse 18 is, hey, all that stuff I just said about stars, as also, those apply to spirits. Now, once we know that, then as we go back in the first 17 verses, you can see, okay, he's not just teaching me astronomy. He's trying to teach me about myself and where I fit in the universe and God's grand cosmic plan. Now, the astronomy lesson revolves, literally in this case, around Kolob, which is the star closest to the throne of God. Now, uh, the beautiful hymn, if you could hide to Kolob in the twinkling of an eye, if there was some way that we could just kind of jet back to God's presence as quickly as possible, what would that be like? Is there an end to any of these things that God is teaching us and giving us? We, we learn here there's no end to his works or to his words. There's no end to his work and glory as long as there are children yet to bring back home to his presence. But what is it about this Kolob and what about all these other stars and their orbits? A lot of what he describes in, these, in this astronomy lesson is, well, there's going to be stars and there's, a, 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 in some ways, it's the Abrahamic theory of relativity. Everything is relative. Some things are bigger than others. Some stars are closer to, the, to God than others. Some orbits are larger than others. But whatever those orbits might be or those distances from God and so on, there's always going to be one that's, that's closer, one that's bigger, one that's more more powerful. And that's the one I want you to be thinking about. It helps put everything else in perspective. Now, if we're talking spirits instead of stars, who does that sound like? Is there a differentiation between us children of God and how close or far we are from heaven? Is there a differentiation as far as our mortal orbits of influence are concerned? Even in callings, there's days where, where you're the bishop leading others, and then you get released, and then somebody else is the bishop leading you. And so your orbit, our orbits change. And, and it, despite whatever proximity or distance we feel, however big or small our spheres of influence might seem to us, there is one that's more important than any other. And again, who does that sound like? That's Jesus Christ. So if we connect the first half of Abraham 3 to the second half, and we realize that, oh, these are stars. Oh, they're spirits. Oh, Kolob. Oh, that's Christ. That the, the closest thing to God is his only begotten son. And so this is a, this is a lesson about Jesus. 
and a lesson about where we all stand in relation to him. So rather than go verse by verse in interest of time, let me just chart this out for us. From verse 2 on the star column, one of them was nearest unto the throne of God. From verse 24 on the spirits column, and there stood one among them that was like unto God. Verse 2, under stars, there were many great ones which were near unto it. Can you picture this whole constellation, this Milky Way of sorts? But verse 22, on the spirit side, among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. That's a verse we're well familiar with, but it's interesting to see it in context here. That as God describes this premortal plan, and that's what Abraham 3 is for, as well as chapter 4 and 5 we'll see next week. Uh, putting the beginning in perspective with an earlier beginning. I mean, in some ways, when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their choice of starting point is interesting. Where Matthew, let's give you the genealogy of Jesus. Mark, let's just start with the baptism, because that's when the, the ministry really gets underway. Luke, well, we need to back up a little bit and at least give you some lead-in with John the Baptist and the forerunner of Jesus. And then we'll have Jesus' birth and celebrate Christmas in Luke 2 and and move on from there. And then there's John, who always does his own thing. And for John, it's like, I mean, he starts with the phrase, in the beginning, to make us think we're going back to creation. But then he goes back even further still, uh, just like the book of Moses does, just like the, here the book of Abraham does. Let's understand the ultimate big picture and see Jesus as the word that had not yet been made flesh, where was he before all of this? And here we're seeing that same thing in Abraham chapter 3. That there was one like unto God. There's Christ. And he sees these other spirits that are near. And he says, these are the noble and great ones. These I will make my rulers. Let's make an earth and send them there. And, and there they can grow and become more like me. I mean, they were created in my similitude. They can ultimately become more like thee, Father, since that is thy work and thy glory. In Abraham 3, we start to see the, the parameters of the plan. We start to see the, this plan of happiness, this plan of progress from loving parents presented to us so, that we can bring to, so they can bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. So that's what this whole object lesson the universe was just the visual aid. So like we said, one is closest, that's Kolob. One is most like the Father, that's the Son. There were many great ones near that star. Well, there were many noble and great ones that were close to Christ. In chapter 3 on the star side, these are the governing ones, governing stars. And in verse 23 on the spirit side, these I will make my rulers. Rulers in the kingdom of God upon the earth. Remember we studied that in section 138 a month or so ago, that there we received our first lessons in the, in the world of spirits to prepare us to come to earth in the due time of the Lord, to be able to perform his work here. That's the noble and great. Those are the rulers. Those are the stars closest to Kolob. In 16 on the star side, we're starting to see this relativity again. If two things exist and there be one above the other, there shall be greater things above them. Therefore, Kolob is the greatest of all. Or verse 19 on the spirits column, there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. 
even when you go back to the beginning of this chapter in verse 3 on the star side, where it says, The name of the great one is Kolob. I have set this one to govern all those. At the end of this chapter in verse 27, when one raises his hand and says, Here am I, send me. And then a second says, No, here am I, send me. And the father simply says, I will send the first. Well, there's the spirit equivalent. This one I have set to govern all of those. Who else would it be than the only begotten, full of grace and truth, is and shall be the Savior? More intelligent than they all, that's for sure. That's what I love about this whole astronomy lesson and the, the relationships and relativities that no matter how large your orbit, Christ has a greater circumference that whatever your gravitational pull, the grace of God has a greater draw than any of that. That no matter what your sphere of influence, Christ is, everything pales in comparison to Kolob. Everything pales in comparison to Christ. I remember once that same daughter of mine who painted the intimate infinity and that introduced my youngest daughter to the glorious expanse of heaven once pointed out about gravity that it all depends on the mass of the object. And the greater the mass, the greater the gravitational pull. And then she compared that to people. I don't even think she'd read Abraham 3, and this was all clicking for her and just saying, you know, there's, depending on your spiritual mass and the way you live your life, it just draws people to you. There's this influence that people have. I mean, <laughs> to invite Einstein into the, into the conversation, you just sense this space-time fabric and you pick this, what do they call it? The, the analogy they always use is the bowling ball on the trampoline. And the weight of this, of this planet or of this star and bending space-time until things are drawn into it. Oh, I'm, no, I'm no astrophysicist, but as one who wants to come in contact with Christ, as one who does feel the draw of divinity, there's something about that, I don't know, that gravitational pull where no one has more mass than the Messiah and no one bends the fabric of space-time more than our heavenly parents. And it just brings all creation into closer proximity to them. That's the lesson that he's trying to teach us here. I mean, there are other beautiful little hints here. In verse 4, he talks about time. And if we're talking about orbits and revolutions of celestial spheres, then time, of course, is going to come into this. He brings up this idea you see in Peter in the New Testament that a day for God is a thousand years with man. To me, there's something theological even there, though. As, as if, if you're looking at God, if you picture Kolob and just one day on Kolob, one chance to just rotate is, is more than, is, is the equivalent of a thousand orbits on earth. And to me, as I ponder that, I just thought, you know, you could look at God from every imaginable angle. That's what an orbit would allow you to do. Do that a thousand times. Just exponential. Just take everything you could possibly know about God. 
viewed from every possible perspective. Do it over and over and over again until you lose count. And it still pales in comparison to how well the Son knows the Father. Kolob to the throne of God. I want to come to know Christ because Christ can introduce me to a fuller knowledge of the Father. That, as, as, as Jesus says to Philip, of all people, if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. And these three years of orbiting my earthly ministry, I hope they've given you a day's worth of glimpse at the glory of God, this Father whom we worship. And there's the infinite. And as for the intimate, look at verse 21. I dwell in the midst of them all. I have come down unto thee to declare unto thee the works which my hands have made. So I'm above all this. Here's infinite. I've come down to speak to you. There's intimate. Wherein my wisdom excelleth them all. For I rule in the heavens above. Infinite. And in the earth beneath. Intimate. In all wisdom and prudence over all the intelligences thine eyes have seen from the beginning. I came down in the beginning in the midst of all the intelligences thou hast seen. And that's when he then shifts to this explanation of the council in heaven. And what are we going to do to help all these other intelligences progress? There's a statement in the King Follett discourse that seems to echo that verse. Joseph taught, God himself, finding he was in the midst of spirits and glory, because he was more intelligent, saw proper to institute laws whereby the rest could have a privilege to advance like himself. The relationship we have with God places us in a situation to advance in knowledge. I love that he focuses on relationship. It's in Abraham's bosom. It's in the embrace of heaven that you can come to know and come to become and come to progress. And so in his condescension, in his mercy, being willing to come down to help the rest of us come back up, that's what this whole plan is for. And so as he explains it, these intelligences that were organized before the world won, there's the noble and great ones, the ones closest to Kolob, that's closest to God. He sees these souls, they were good, he stands in their midst, these I will make my rulers. He says to Abraham, talk about the intimate here, Abraham, thou art one of them. Thou wast chosen before thou wast born. Many called, few chosen. Moses, I've chosen thee. Abraham, I've chosen thee. Now 24, they stood one among them that was like unto God. Here's Kolob personified as Christ. He said, we will go down. There is space there. We will take of these materials and we will make an earth whereon these may dwell. Talk about a great prelude for the creation accounts. Verse 25, we will prove them herewith to see if they will do all things whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them. That's God in his condescension instituting laws by which we can grow up in him. Not laws to restrict us, but laws to focus and to help facilitate our growth. 26 speaks of that kind of growth, keeping first estate, adding on a second estate, keeping second estate, adding on from there. This is grace for grace, enabling us to progress from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. And then in 27, the Lord says, whom shall I send? Now, notice what he didn't ask. He didn't ask, what shall we do? 
The father was not confused about his plan. He wasn't asking for ideas out there like, Any, anybody got a clue on how we can make people more like us? How do I get people home? Because that's the irony of Satan's plan. He actually did have a counter plan, but he wasn't countering Christ. He was countering the father. Christ did not have his own plan. He was simply willing to perform his role in the plan of his father. God asks, whom shall I send? There, we're planning creation. There will be fall because there will be agency, eternal principle. I'm actually honoring it already in the question, whom shall I send? I'm honoring agency here. And will you go? I'm honoring agency there. I'll honor agency throughout eternity, but that will require an atonement. And so the plan revolves around atonement, which means it centers on the atoning one. Whom shall I send? Now, if we had the time right here, I would pause and take us to Revelation chapter 5, which gives us the fuller version of what happens. Because here it's so understated. He asks, whom shall I send? And one answers like unto the Son of Man, here am I, send me. Another answers and says, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I will send the first. And the second was angry and kept not his first estate, and at that day many followed after him. Oh, okay. Well, a two-verse war in heaven? That didn't seem very dramatic. Uh, and you can't really get a sense of why the Lord... What Was it just... Oh, sorry, he volunteered first. He got dibs. He, his hand went up just a split second before yours. Because, I mean, you said the exact same thing that he did. Here am I, send me either way. Well, no. For this, we need Revelation 5. We need Revelation 12. We need uh, Isaiah 14. There's so many other... We need the JST of Luke 3. There's so many other passages in Scripture that we'll get to as we go through the standard works this year and next. But to understand really the drama, let me just paint it in broad strokes. Whom shall I send? In the Revelation version, here comes a strong angel holding a book with the seven seals and asking all of assembled heaven, who is worthy, not strong, because I'm already strong, the angel could say, but worthy, who is worthy to loose the seven seals? We learn from John later that his own mission call took the form of a, of a scroll. And so if his was a scroll to open, so was the Lord. So his was sealed with seven seals, though. Who has the authority to unlock and open the responsibilities of the Son of God? Who is worthy to be the Savior of the world? That's where the JST of Luke 3 comes in, because it tells these Ten Commandments for Christ, that the Ten Commandments for us are cakewalks compared to what he had to do. And so no wonder in Revelation 5, no one's able to do it. And all of heaven begins to weep as they recognize there's no hope for us if there's no one that can fulfill that role. Our mission calls don't mean a thing if that one isn't fulfilled. And there in the midst of the, of the weeping and wailing, one holy hand is raised. Here am I, send me. In other words, I can keep all the Ten Commandments of Christ. I, can, I am worthy to loose the book with the seven seals. I can do this, Father, and I will, and the glory be thine. Satan's plan wasn't just, oh, pick me instead. It was, no, here's a completely alternate plan that doesn't require my self-sacrifice because there's nothing to pay a price for. 
that involves no risk and therefore no real reward. But hey, at least everyone will come home. They'll have immortality. Well, yes, but they won't have eternal life. Ah, oh, what's the difference? They sound synonymous to me. No, you're only offering quantity. You cannot offer quality. Yeah, you can get them home, but they never will be like me. Until they learn to fall and learn to come into Christ so that he can change their very nature. Right now, they're only in his similitude. There's a lot of growing up still to do. Well, when the angel calms our our fears and dries our tears, he says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed to open the book with the seven seals. A lion has roared down death and hell itself and will come off conqueror. And so we all look around to see this lion. And as we strain our eyes to see, we notice who the angel is pointing to, and it's a lamb, as if it were slain. Wait a minute. You, we're looking for a lion. And the angel would probably smile and say, and you're looking at him. No, no, that's a lamb. Yes, it is. You see, even he proves those contraries. Christ is both the lion and the lamb. He has the ferocity to roar death into submission, but has the submissiveness himself to, to bid us to come unto him. No wonder he's such a good shepherd, because he was the ultimate sheep, the Lamb of God. Christ himself is the ultimate proving of those contraries. God is proving his contraries. He's asking us to prove our own. Now, I guess we could end there. But I want to say in conclusion, in the face of all the controversies that swirl around the book of Abraham, because some of the papyrus fragments uh, of those rolls that Joseph Smith purchased with those mummies have come to light. Most were destroyed in uh, the fire, uh, the Chicago fire, but a few were preserved and ended up in the Metropolitan Museum, which then in the 1960s found their way back to church headquarters as Egyptologists are crying foul saying, oh, we can read those now. And Joseph Smith was wrong. Those are not, that's not the book of Abraham. Now, there's all kinds of things you can read about this. The Gospel Topics essays on the book of Abraham are good. Uh, there's a lot of good resources out there. Um, I won't dig into all of the detail. I'll simply say this. There are, there's two main approaches. One would simply say, well, there were massive scrolls, and what was discovered are from this part, you know, kind of part A of the scroll, and what we have translated in the book of Abraham must be from part B of the scroll. Uh, and there were lots. Uh, they talked about, Joseph talked about books of Abraham, but also books of Joseph of Egypt. And it's like, wow, where's all that material? So some would say, it's fine that the Egyptologists say it's just this, and that Joseph would say it's just it's this instead, because they're looking at two different things. Then again, another approach is, what if the Egyptologists got it right, and Joseph got it right? That from an Egyptological perspective, yeah, these are just funerary texts. The, the round ones, just a hypocephalus, which is kind of this disc of instructions on how to navigate the afterlife that was placed under the head of the mummy. I mean, you're not going to forget it if that's your, your travel plans. And when you wake up in the resurrection, just look behind you and it'll tell you how to navigate. Well, in some ways, isn't that what Abraham's giving us? Oh, not translated the same way that the Egyptologists translate theirs, but isn't this giving us a roadmap 
of the heavens? Isn't it teaching us how to navigate this life and the next? I mean, to me, there's a question about, are these scrolls that Joseph Smith had a catalog of Abraham's revelation, or are they a catalyst for Joseph's? And is he reading on papyrus what Abraham wrote, or is he reading through spiritual eyes the truths that God revealed to Abraham that now is revealing to Joseph Smith? In some ways, those that say, oh, this is the smoking gun. This is the silver bullet. We now have evidence that Joseph doesn't know how to translate. I would simply say, oh, no, well, now we have evidence to help us better understand how Joseph is translating. Well, that's always been a mystery. I mean, he can't translate Reformed Egyptian because he doesn't know it. Nobody does. He can't translate the Joseph Smith translation. That's English to English. What kind of translation is that? No, it's pure revelation. Ah, does that better, does that help us better understand how he translated the Book of Mormon? How he translated the Joseph Smith translation? How he translated the Book of Abraham? That these were catalysts for him to receive revelation from above? In fact, if you were to look at the 1828 dictionary, Webster's first one, which gives us a snapshot in time as to what words meant when Joseph used them. So grateful for Noah Webster's timing. Look up Translate. It'll blow your mind. Because Translate in 1828 had like seven different definitions. And the sixth is where we first see a hint of, oh yeah, changing one language to another. What, if that's the sixth definition, what were the first five? And it's things like, carrying or removing things from one place to another. It's about conveying to heaven as a human being that doesn't taste of death. It's to transfer or convey from one to another or remove from one part of the body to another. It means to change things. Why else do we talk about translated beings? That never made sense to me when I was a kid. Oh, and Enoch was translated or you know, these translated beings. And I'm like, what language do they speak now? No, it's not about language. It's about, it's about connecting heaven and earth. It's about changing our very essence. That's translating. Oh, I guess you could use it for changing one language to another too. That's a change as well, but oh, that's a minor one. And what's amazing to me is to see Joseph's translations of words was really meant to translate people to translate saints, to catch them up to God as Enoch did. I'll, I'll say this uh, as we wrap up today, because I always got a kick out of this on my mission. Uh, when I would teach people about premortality, there's no better place to see it than Abraham chapter three. Premortality is a mind-blowing doctrine that I don't think we fully appreciate. Go read Terrell Given's book, When Souls Had Wings, and you will come to appreciate the doctrine of premortality again. It's amazing. As he walks you through the history of the doctrine of premortal thought throughout Western thinking and sees it popping up left and right through all these civilizations and time periods and then getting squashed down by orthodoxy, so-called, because, oh, it, it collapses the distance between humanity and divinity. It makes us too much like God, because if we were with him before, what's keeping us from becoming like him later on? And Latter-day Saints were like, exactly, no problem. Both of those doctrines are true. And yet orthodoxy, quote-unquote, is scared to death of both possibilities. So they squash them both. 
Well, it, ha it keeps popping up like whack-a-mole because it has such explanatory power in so many areas. The doctrine of premortality is breathtaking. And nowhere will you see it better than in Abraham chapter 3. Well, the irony here is you're in the, as a missionary, I'm in the middle of teaching people about premortality. And so I'll ask them, oh, would you read Abraham chapter 3, verse 22 and 23, about these noble and great ones, and of these I will make my rulers, and he sees among these spirits, and they're good, and we're going to make an earth and send them. This is the plan. This is incredible stuff. But for whatever reason, when they typeset the, the pearl of great price, the, the verse 22, right in the middle, you have to turn the page. And you're expecting to find the rest of the verse. But you turn it and, whoa, there's facsimile number two from the book of Abraham with its explanation. So there's the hypocephalus, the big round bunch of hieroglyphics. I keep thinking, man, I wish they would have put that at the end as an appendix. Uh, because, I mean, it's awesome stuff, but it's, it, it's almost too awesome. We're so fascinated by Egyptian hieroglyphics. Maybe that's why we're going, we've reverted back to emojis in our day. Uh, we're, we're, we're channeling our, our inner Egyptian, that we completely forget what we're talking about. Uh, it happened all the time, to the point that I stopped having investigators read the verse. And I would just read it to them, and I would keep these two pages stuck together, and I would just read, oh, that those were, uh, they were organized before the world was, and among all these, there were many of the noble and great ones. And then we could keep talking about premortality, and the power of that doctrine could rest on the souls of the investigators. Because in the other way, again, it happened every time. Wow, pre-mortality, that's so incredible. What the? And now I don't, what were we talking about again? And we get completely lost in, in the picture. Now, I don't know of, of a better analogy for what happens to people when we lose sight of the content of the book of Abraham as we get all worked up in the controversy of papyrus fragments and what did the Egyptologists say and so on. Same thing happened with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Nobody seemed to spend any time in the text itself by way of skeptics and so on. They just got so caught up in a story of angels and a gold Bible and that nobody paid the record any attention. They cared about the plates. Remember how Mormon says that? This this record is of great worth, but the plates are of no worth. Well, but they're gold. Ah, they might as well have been tinfoil. It doesn't matter. It's just what's written upon them matters most. Same thing here. We get the controversy surrounds the, the plates, not the record. The, the controversy surrounds the papyri, not the principles that are taught in the book of Abraham. If I got to pick between an Egyptologist's translation of the whore book of breathings or some hypocephalus out there, or what an unlearned seer saw on Egyptian papyri trying to make sense of what, what's in Abraham's bosom here, what's in the heart of God. If I could read both, a scholar's translation and a seer's translation, of course they're going to be different. They're looking at it from two completely different angles. Personally, I'll take this seer's translation any day because it actually has helped me navigate life and will continue to help me navigate the afterlife. I, I don't need a hypocephalus 
but I'm grateful for a prophet who's given me the book of Abraham to understand Abraham's background, which we'll see in chapter 1, to, um, at his tests, to understand the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll see in chapter 2, to see this mind-blowing astronomy lesson in chapter 3, and to see my connection to God through all of these orbits, to see a creation account that answers questions that no other does. We'll see that next time in chapter 4 and 5. Oh, say what you will about the book of Abraham's provenance, how it got here and what it is, and I will counter with its content. I am blown away by the view of heaven and earth that the book of Abraham gives me. In fact, back up and see all that we've talked about today. And I will stand behind Joseph Smith in the view of eternity that he provides. That is the sight of a seer. And talk about spiritual eyes instead of natural ones. If I had to pick which ones to wear, I'd wear God's glasses any day. I testify of the truth and the goodness of these things. I testify of living prophets, past and present. I testify of a God of glory who is also a, a God of goodness. The, the almighty God of the universe who is also the father of each of us. My dear friends, pick whatever pocket you need. Read about your dust and your divinity. And as we study the Old Testament this year, coming to, to understand God and his purpose for us, then may you and I live into God's work and God's glory and make it our work and glory as well. It's immortality, it's eternal life, it's being a family again and coming home.